a better chance of getting Amy. And Amy will be dead by then, too. Now, come on. Welcome to Fright Night. Season of the Horrorthon as we welcome our listeners to a very frightful episode of the Film Effect Podcast, giving you full effect deep dives for the Film Effect Archive. And our next season of the Horrorthon entry is certainly one to sink your teeth into. It's part tale of Boy Who Cried Wolf, part Rear Window, part Nosferatu, but overall it happens to be one of the greatest vampire features of the entire 80s decade. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Ed. I am The Vern. And welcome to Fright Night. For real. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. <laughs> This could be the night of your life. Fright Night. Coming to your neighborhood this summer. 
Friday night follows young Charlie Brewster, who discovers that his next-door neighbor, Jerry Dandridge, is a vampire. When no one believes him, Charlie decides to recruit Peter Vincent, a television show host who acted in horror movies as a vampire hunter, to help him stop Jerry's killing spree. And finally, Fright Night is being discussed on the film effect. It's such a simple, fun, provocative, hard classic that's praised for all the right reasons. You've got boy, boy meets neighbor, boy suspects neighbor is Count Dracula, boy is right, and now we've got a movie. And I also like how it's very contained. There's not a whole lot of different sets. You've got Charlie's house, Jerry's house, the nightclub, some alleyways. That's pretty much it. You know, but first, I want to welcome Vern from the Cinema Recall podcast to his first film effect appearance and hopefully the first of many more. Why don't you take a second to tell us about yourself and your podcast, buddy? Oh, well, thank you very much, Ed. A huge honor to be on the Film Effect podcast for the first time, hopefully more. Uh, hi, everyone out there in internet world. I am The Vern. I am one of the hosts of Cinema Retail Podcast, and we are a podcast that loves everything from the multiplex to the art house, and we cover a wide range of features on our show. Uh, my co-host is Ashley Yurak, who unfortunately couldn't be on the show because she's going on vacation to California. Oh, for her. But yeah, I was saying to get into Fright Night. This is one of my childhood favorites. It's a movie that I watched with my parents many times growing up. And so it'd be nice to talk about with you. That's awesome. That's it's so good. Um, yeah, man. Thank you for taking the time to come on here today. I'm assuming you're a big Fright Night fan since I gave you your choice of Horathon episodes. And yeah. You chose this one. So plus you just said so yourself. So tell me something though. What does Fright Night mean to you? But the the movie in general, or just the name Fright Night? No, 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 not the not, not the not the name, the, okay. the movie. <laughs> the movie, the okay. Whole, the whole shebang. The whole shebang right there. Um, I just generally liked that it has characters that felt real to me, even in the construct of an '80s horror movie. Right. Now, be the fact that this was released in 1985, and it still like capitalizing on the teen sets comedy that was really, really big at the time. Because uh, you got Charlie Brewster, who's really into his girlfriend, loves horror, has a mom that's really supportive of her teenage son having sex, which is absolutely amazing. If I was that young, bringing a girl over, I would. my parents would never be that happy about it. Um, and then you got... He meets his new neighbor. Actually, no, it doesn't mean his new neighbor sees people carrying coffins mm-hmm. and can become suspicious. Uh, sees a woman getting killed and uh, notices, doesn't really think about vampires, but just knows that there's something off about his neighbors. And then sees through the window that, oh gosh, this guy actually is a vampire. Tries to get his mom to believe him. No one does. Uh, right. All his friends think he's crazy, everything. But he has one believer and that is uh peter vincent uh, played wonderfully by roddy mcdowell um yeah just and being the fact that when i was a kid watching this for the first time i was just really into a story about uh no one believing you when things happen because when you're a kid you can see stuff that no one will believe you and all that fun thing so yeah i just generally love it i think i saw this movie back when i was like eight or nine years mm-hmm. old watching it it was kind of a weird thing for a kid to watch a movie like this, but 
I don't know, all the nudity and sets and whatnot, that just went over my head as a kid. I don't know why. Just maybe because my parents never called attention to it. And when they didn't call attention to it, I wasn't, you know, as affected by it, if that makes sense. No, it, it, it makes plenty of sense. Um, it's actually a good segue, you bringing it up your first time at all, because that's how we kick off the conversation on the podcast here, is our first time viewings. Oh my goodness, I remember the first time I saw that picture. I thought it was just wonderful. And so, you kind of already started, so I'll let you finish like your what your first time experience with this movie was like, and, you know, go on, go on. So man. back... Back in the days of VHS ad, and I'm sure you remember VHS tapes. Oh, oh God, yeah. 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 So I remember my mom bringing this movie home from the video store. And for our listeners out there, the bots art <laughs> of the VHS is really, really cool. Because it has this house, and it has this clouds going up from the house. And all these clouds of smoke form the image of this horrific demon vampire and in the window there's like a lighted shadow and i remember just being more freaked out by that lighted shadow more than the creature on the bot chart so my mom brings this movie home for us to watch and it starts off with a uh, pan into a house yeah and we're seeing we're hearing the dialogue of a movie being played like an old hammer horror film and whatnot and meeting uh, Charlie Brewster and uh, his girlfriend. Or actually, Charlie Brewster played by, um, I want to say... William Ragsdale. Uh, thank you, William Ragsdale. His girlfriend, Amanda, played by Amanda Bierce. Um, and during the course of it, I was both intrigued by meeting Jerry Dandridge. I think that Chris Randon plays a wonderful job with that. Uh, and I found it to be both horrifying... I also really loved the character of uh, Evil Ed. I thought that he was probably, when watching it as a kid, the character I really liked the most because he was the comic relief. And he took away a lot of the tension of watching this movie because as a kid, yes, there are some pretty scary moments in there. But with Ed doing his comedy skits, comedy, uh, skits and whatnot, I thought mm-hmm. that was really cool. Yeah, Stephen Jeffries. We're going to talk about him in a little bit. Um, okay. There's actually a, a story about him that I want to uh, tell. Not, 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 not a big personal one, but something that's kind of related to this and another film that came out um, not long after this that I remember him from. But okay. um, for my first time, though, um, so I brought this up on this show countless times. There was an old, there was a television show every Saturday afternoon here in Baltimore on syndicated television, 2 p.m. every Saturday afternoon, Nightmare Theater. Channel 54, and every every Saturday they would have a different horror movie, and Fright Night was my introduction. Whenever you know the, the day they actually aired Fright Night um, was when I first saw it, um, and I, I was familiar with it. Honestly, I, I honestly got more familiarized with Part Two than oh. over the first one because Part I remember because Part Two was a big showtime movie that was always on showtime when it came out in the okay. 80s early 90s and i, I was kind of like raised on like those premium channels showtime That's, cinemax and hbo i and don't know why but i, I saw part two for the first time this last week really oh yeah well <laughs> we're off, off topic what'd you think 
I liked it. Yeah, it's really good. It still holds up too. I watched I it a couple really of, uh, couple months ago, and it, it, it there's a pretty good copy of it to watch for free on YouTube. Yeah, and um, it, it, I'm telling you, man, they got to get them rights figured out, and someone's got to put that like, a collector's edition Blu-ray out on that movie because it's it's long overdue. Number one. And number two, pe- more people need to see it. It's because Fright Night Part Two is a damn good movie. I love how they got Ragsdale and McDowell back, mm-hmm. um, and just they kind of carry it all. It's kind of a continuation. To the, that's hence the Part Two, yeah, and not just two, because um, it's Jerry's sister now as the vampire. And I love how she's got this collection of different. They, it's not just vampires. Like one of the guys, um, I think it's John Grise from. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite, he plays the Wolfman. And um, Brian Thompson, most people remember him from Cobra. Um, he uh, he's oh, also yep. he's also the guy who gets his heart punched out by the Terminator in the first in the first film by Schwarzenegger. Oh he's the punk. That's right. Oh and yeah, and he's he's like the uh the, the cab he's he's like the, the chauffeur type who like the, the big muscle who doesn't really talk and is fixated with bugs. Yeah. And so yeah, part two is just uh, it's 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 a wild movie and and it's pretty good. I'm and glad it's directed un- by Tom Lee Wallace too. So Tom yeah, Lee Wallace, yeah. yeah, Halloween, exactly. And um, I actually just found that out recently that he did that movie, and uh, for night part two, not Halloween. And so yeah, part two is what I was what I was more familiarized with growing up because it was always on TV. But mm-hmm. when I got older and the DVD came out from Columbia, and then eventually Twilight Time put out the Blu-ray and all. We'll get into that later on as in our um, digital section or um, physical media section. I've got more and more, you know, familiarized with this with the first one as it came out, you know, on social media. And I got older and you know built up a collection and all. Because I had, I used to have a collection of videos. Of, I was a collector, always been an advocator for physical media. I had a big VHS collection, and then it was DVD, and then Blu-ray, and so on and so forth. Now it's 4K. Praise you, Ed. Praise you, buddy. That's epic. I love that. Uh, yeah, dude. And and Fright Night. Unfortunately, I never had that on VHS, but I definitely got the DVD. So that was my first time in a nutshell. Um, yeah. Like I said, Nightmare Theater. Um, so yeah, we are going to now jump into the next category. We always talk numbers in the form of box office receipts. Get receipts. So Friday Night opened on August 2nd, 1985 from Columbia Pictures. It opened up across 1,542 screens, grossing $6.1 million opening weekend, coming in in third place. Second weekend, it dropped 30.4%. It's not a bad drop-off, actually, for a horror film in the 80s. The fifth place, $4.2 million. Overall, the film grossed $24.9 million worldwide, against a $9.5 million budget. Pretty good for the 80s. Pretty good yeah, for the great. 80s. In fact, it performed the best of any horror film released during the summer of 85, and it was the second highest grossing horror film of the year in total. The only other horror film that made more than this? Can you guess it? The other horror film in 1985 was a Friday... No, not Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. There you go. That's right. Is Revenge. It? Yeah, nice. So, yeah. Um, obviously... It, 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 it was a success. It made money yeah. for the company, and, and enough for them to warrant a sequel a couple years later. So, uh, made it pretty penny. Because Fright Night does have like a uh, it, ha- it 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 uh, appeases to the general public more. I would than say, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street style going on because you have your main character uh, 
being like the audience avatar, very likable guy, the guy that you want to see succeed and get the girl. And they made a vampire, and I love that they chose Chris Randon, who is both charismatic and charming, and yet very sinister and evil. Combine that with a great special effects, mm -hmm. um, great comedic roles from both Ryder McDowell, and I totally blanked on the guy's name who played Ed. Um, Stephen Jeffries. Stephen, Stephen Jeffries, sorry about that. Okay. And you have a very solid movie that families can enjoy because, like I said before, my whole family watched this movie. That's as cool. As a kid. Which I is, mean, my mom liked horror movies, but we never really watched them together. Nothing like yeah, that. No, so uh, we watched that, and I remember watching Poltergeist with a family <laughs> a lot. Well, that's so, more yeah, of a family affair like kind of movie. Like True. I think of that... Like, like uh, Gremlins is another one that's kind of like you watch with the family, stuff like that. But not, I don't not know what, bad. Nothing bad about them. I'm a big fan of Poltergeist and Gremlins, for the record. Gremlins does have some more gorier th scenes than. Gremlins is just fun. I, I, me and my daughter British. watched the first Gremlins a couple years ago during the pandemic, and we were legit laughing. I had never laughed in the first Gremlins so hard in my life. The bar scene. We were oh, floored. Like, her and I had to rewind this scene like three times because we could not get the laugh out yet. We weren't done watching it. We were laughing so hard. Like it was oh, just, I don't know if it was just a spur of the moment thing or just we just thought it was actually funny. Like that night, we, we found yeah. Gremlins to be the funniest thing ever. Oh, that's so cool. I can't wait to hear her reaction to Gremlins 2, the new batch. But that's for another episode. Um, Dude, Gremlins 2, I've said on this podcast numerous times, I'll say it one more time, greatest sequel ever made. Yes. Oh, Ed, epic. I love that Gremlins so much. Gremlins 2, the new batch, greatest sequel ever. For totally reasons agree. that we will get into in the episode when it inevitably gets made. Okay, I can't wait for that one, buddy. That'd be epic as kill. Uh, oh, uh, man. So uh, before we get into the actual breakdown of the film itself, let's do our pre-dive top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation. For this episode, we're going to do top five 80s vampire films. Keep it simple. Uh, for me, I got a couple of honorable mentions before I do my top five. Okay. Uh, it's just two because it's it's kind of slim pickings for 80s vampire movies there's yeah. like there's like seven or eight firm ones <laughs> so you know um, and, and I, I kind of did it intentionally because the top fives where it's just like you get more options variety of, of thing of movies you can choose from it's like it takes long and all I'm like you know we're gonna keep it contained here 80s and vampires okay there's only like seven or eight of them so okay Right. Life Force and Sundown the Vampire Retreat, which is a late 80s vamp. It's kind of a vampire comedy with um, Bruce Campbell and David Carradine and a bunch of other people. Um, Lionsgate uh, Vestron just put it out for their Vestron line, and I, I so picked it up. It's called Sundown the Vampire Retreat? The Vampire in Retreat, yes. Okay. It's, it came out in, uh, right. I want to say, about... 89. Oh, I, I, I got it right here. Yeah, David Carradine, Bruce Campbell, Deborah, For uh, Deborah Foreman, 
it, wait, well, April Fool's Day's Deborah Foreman? Yes, the very same. Oh. And, and Valley Girl's okay. Deborah Foreman. Valley, yes. Yep. Uh, Dana Asbrook from Waxwork, another one of my favorite 80s vampire or 80s horror films in general. There was a vampire in it. And Emmett Walsh is in this fucking movie. Like, there's a lot of people that show up in this movie. And like I said, Vestron just put that on Blu-ray, um, you know, earlier this year or last year. And um, it's worth it. It's, 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 it, was, it was a fun time when I watched it. So enough to okay. warn an honorable mention, at least. Uh, okay. But my number five is The Hunger from Tony Scott. Ooh, Different nice. kind of vampire movie, but it's a, such an underrated film. It's It's a slow burn. But the film starts off with Bauhaus as Bella Lugosi is dead, one of my favorite fucking songs ever. And it's this 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 intimate like night scene with uh, like a club sequence with David Bowie and his his mistress and they you find out they're vampires but they're not because there's no actual fangs or act there's no it's it's a different kind of vampire movie. No one gets bit on the neck. Um but this, the um, the whole um, tr- ancient like you know live forever and stuff like that that, that all that um, it still comes into play. The whole mythology of vampires is, is still very strong with this movie. But Tim, uh, Tim, Tony Scott chose to do to, to take the the, the vampire um, story, and he just did his own thing with it. It's it's a very sexual film. It's um, kind of misleading. Cause it's it, it kind of it's promoted to make you think that David Bowie's the main star. Uh, spoiler alert: he's out of the film halfway through. And it's kind of shocking what happens to him. But Susan Sarandon comes in and she kind of replaces him in the movie. And it, it's it's pretty much a showcase of um, her and um, oh, Catherine Deneuve. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming I, you've seen it. I, I remember that this is at my number five spot too. Okay, perfect, perfect. And I also wanted to shout out uh, Dick Smith, the legendary Dick Smith, who did the makeup effects for the movie. But yeah, The Hunger is underrated, great film. My number five, your number five. It, re- it reminds me very much of like an early music video, like a long-term yes. music video yes. that they put a plot into it. Yes, yes. It's a good way of a, putting it, yeah. A, it's a very simple plot, too, uh, because both uh, Susan Sarandon is, you know, getting seduced by Catherine Deneuve and mm-hmm. David Bowie's character, and she's slowly becoming a vampire. And it's a movie that revolts more on visuals than music, than than dialogue. I mean, there's dialogue yeah. in there, but not a lot of it. Right. Um, and it it almost kind of reminds me, it ran, because this is Tony Scott's first movie that he did. Correct. And it seems to me that he was trying to still find his style. So it seems like he borrowed a lot of things from his brother Ridley Scott in certain sequences. But yet, he's doing his own thing. He's doing his own thing, uh, exactly. With the use of the music. Because I don't think uh, Ridley Scott uses music as movies, but he doesn't use like pop music. And Toy Scott has a way of using pop music, but making it orchestral. I mean, look what he does 10 years later with True Romance. Yes. You know, you could say that's also a music video if you wanted mm-hmm. to. The way he incorporates, like, the other side from Aerosmith in that, in that movie and other songs like Elvis and shit. Like, it's, it's, it, you could, I couldn't have said it any better than you. And also, I love the one fucking, I love Dan Hedaya 
and he shows up in the film as a as a, like a cop and he's in like one scene it's 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 still great um mm-hmm. but Willem Dafoe and John Pankow both from to, to live and die in LA which we just covered on the podcast they pop up in the film in like a one blinking you'll miss it scene oh. and um they're like these two like punks who harass uh um Susan Sarandon at a phone booth and you can tell it's Willem Dafoe. Very young Willem Dafoe. This is pre-Streets of Fire Willem Dafoe. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, it's still... Yeah. So anyway, right. my number four then is The Lost Boys. This would probably be higher on a lot of people's lists. I'm just mm-hmm. not as high on The Lost Boys as most people are. I'm a big... Okay. I'm a fan of The Lost Boys. Don't get me wrong, you know. It's, it's on what, my list. What, what no, puts it down low it. for you? I'm what, sorry? What's the, what makes it down low for you? You put it number four. What's the... Uh... Uh, my number three, two, and ones are, I think, are better films. Okay. <laughs> That's all. Oh, I, I love that. That's perfect. Okay, go ahead. Continue with Lost Boys. But I, I like, uh, dude, Lost Boys, no disrespect, no ill will towards the film. It's, sure. it's a movie I love popping in every October. I I, I love um, Quiet Little Sister. I love, mm-hmm. the, I love the Corys. I love Jason Patrick. Um, I, I love... The, the main the, the vampires and the location and on the beach um the the, the saxophonist everything about yeah. the boss boys you know it's just it's it's a fun movie it's um i, I love the twist at the end of edward herman is the vampire and shit and then like the the grandfather who just like you know one thing i hate about this town the damn vampires and the fucking yes. movie ends it's, it's great it ends <laughs> on a fucking funny bit like that and you know the doors, and I just listed a bunch of reasons why I love the Lost Boys, and I I do I do legitimately love the, love the film. It's just I'm not as high on it as a lot of people are, and I'll explain That's why fair. as we do my three four uh, three two and one. So what's your number four? I, Go on. All right, well uh, my number four is, is not the Lost Boys. Mine's a little higher. Um, for my number four. And I'll be honest with you, it's a movie that I haven't been able to watch recently just because I haven't been able to find a streaming copy of it anywhere. Um, and I have it on a laser disc, but it's only the subtitle version, and I lost my remote to turn the subtitles on on my laser disc. So I started to watch it again, but I still think it's gorgeously beautiful. It's an animated movie. It's uh, Vampire Hunter D. Yeah, I'm aware of it. I I, I I I'm I've never seen it. I'm I'm familiar with it. That's what I meant to say. All right. So, Vampire Hunter D is an anime series that came out around I want to say late yeah 1986. Okay. Uh, Japanese fantasy horror film, and its basic plot. If I can just pull this up here really fast. So, uh, Vampire Hunter D wanders through a far future post nuclear war Earth. That combines elements of pulp genres. Uh, you remember that story from Stephen Teen, The Gunslinger? Mm-hmm. The Dark Tower. Well, just imagine that, but instead of the gunslinger, the gunslinger is like a vampire hunter, and he's going around just finding different vampires. It's it's so much like Tate's cues from early Hammer films. Okay. And combines it with the you know the original uh, Universal Monsters movie, and it's just gorgeously animated and I really want to rewatch it again before we do this episode just to kind of familiar myself with the storyline but I wasn't able to find a copy of it but it's really well done 
Um, and I think it's really short. It's about maybe like an hour or so long. But yeah, I just I found it for something different. Go with Vampire Hunter D. Gorgeous animation. That's my number four. All right. Number three. This is probably the one that's probably going to have people scratching their heads. Like, you like this one, Lost Boys? Vamp. 1986. Grace Jones, right? Grace Jones. You were right. I always want to see this movie, but I never got never a chance seen to watch it. I've okay. never seen Vamp. So um, bad. Arrow Video put out uh, an edition on Blu-ray about seven, eight years ago. I recommend checking it out. Um, oh. It's worth it. It's worth a blind buy for you. But yeah? Vamp okay. is... Um, it's a Richard Wink movie with um, Chris Makepeace from uh, Meatballs and um, My Bodyguard and Robert Rustler from Elm Street 2 and he's also from Thrashing and he's also in Weird Science with um, um, Jesus, Robert Downey Jr. And the two of them are best friends and it's actually you can thank this film for From Dust to Dawn being a movie because it's basically the same plot. These two go to a bar they're going for it's goofy. They're, they're they're going to find a stripper to join a fraternity, and they okay. they they stumble upon a bar that's after hours, and it turns out to be led by vampires, ran by oh. vampires, <laughs> and the owner of this joint is played by the late great Sandy Barron, and he's hilarious in this movie. He's obsessed with Las Vegas. And he, everything with everything that he does with this club, he's trying to mimic Vegas, even though they're not anywhere near Vegas. They're in California somewhere. Um, but they got Giddy Watanabe's with them from fucking 16 Candles yeah. and Gung Ho and so many other films. And uh, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Michelle Pfeiffer's little sister, is the love interest who is like a, a cocktail waitress at this bar. But she happens to be the only human who's not a vampire who just... She's like a ditz in the movie, to be honest with you. And and she's open about it, too. But it's a fun movie. I have fun with this movie. And it reminds me of just a better time, you know? Because it's a movie that just cuts loose and it it has fun. And, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's unapologetic. And that's what I love about it. And Billy Drago's in it. If you, for those of you who don't know who Billy Drago is, he's also a, a called actor. Many films. Oh. He's he's like he's a guy you look at his face, you're like, oh, I've seen that guy before, and a million things. Probably the most popular film he's been in was um, The Palm is the Untouchables. He's oh, got shit, a face. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he's just got a, a that guy face. But he shows up in it, and it's funny too because they they made him. The leader of this like albino gang, who, <laughs> you, who you think are vampires, but turns out they're not. They're just in the wrong place at the at the wrong time. I, it's it's see the movie. This sounds uh, cool. I mean, you kind of sold me already when it says about a bunch of guys who try to find a stripper and they get mixed up with vampires. And, because that's totally from Dust Till Dawn. Exactly. Uh, and I looked at the movie. I see that's playing on Tubi, so I have no excuse. But. Uh, check this movie out and I will be for sure watching it this month or if not Excellent. this week. I will definitely check this out. There I, you go. And I just, I love the film. Um, we covered it last year on the Horathon and I had Kevin Aaron from the podcast that wouldn't die for that episode. Oh, fun. They had fun with it. We had fun with it. 
They actually covered it themselves because they leave no fat on the bone, according to them. So <laughs> they went and covered it on their show as well. So, yeah, because oh, of my love yeah. for Vamp, okay. it's been covered twice. So, yeah, that's my number three is Vamp. How about you, man? All right. Well, my number three, let me go back to my list of blood-sucking movies. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to go Life Force. Okay. I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually going to do Life Force. Um Toby Hooper's movie because mm-hmm. he did let he Toby Hooper when he made this uh, made a deal with Canon Studios to make a few features. He signed a contract and he did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two, mm-hmm. which is the movie that I love more than Texas Chainsaw Massacre One. I understand Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a classic, It's a bona fide classic, it is a masterpiece, it is like five star rating, it deserves all the praise, but my love is still for part two. I love the characters, I like Kellen Williams and Stretch, uh, but anyways, getting back to Life Force, Life Force is about a group of astronauts who finds this floating spaceship filled with a bunch of like people that they assume are dead, but no, it turns out that they are actually space vampires. And yes. They wreck everything, and yes, I will sound shallow. I don't care. I love this movie because of Matilda May. <laughs> yes, hundred percent. He's also got uh, uh, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, yes, and if Patrick Stewart got naked more, then maybe it would be better too. But nope, it's just <laughs> Matilda May watched around this movie like bare naked and absolutely gorgeous, beautiful body, just beautiful face, just. Yes, and she's a vampire. Uh, I would be dead. I would say this right now. If I saw her walking around, I would be dead, and I would be absolutely <laughs> okay with it. I have, I lived a good life, you know. I had good friends and family, and you know, um, women I loved and everything like that there too. So I would be like, I'm good. I can go peacefully now, and I would say thank you, vampire lady. Just hold me close and just trade me away. And you know, I've always was- said she has a striking resemblance to Alyssa Milano in that movie. She does. Isn't it yes. crazy how much she looks like her in that? It's like, it, wow. May, maybe Embrace the Vampire that Alyssa Milano made yeah, a few go. years later is somewhat related to this movie. Maybe, See, it's all know, coming around. That's her mother. But yeah, uh, find it to be a lot of fun. Just a little crazy and weird near the end. And I believe there's two different versions available of this movie. Like, there are. Okay. There's and, an international uh, version and a theatrical version. Because I've only seen the theatrical version. I have not seen the international version yet. So I've only seen the theatrical version myself. Um, I know the version that I have um, is 4K from Scream Scream Factory. But they only did the theatrical cut in 4K. They did not get the rights to do the international cut in 4K. But they still included it on a Blu-ray separate disc. Hmm. So I haven't, haven't, you know, I just... I haven't watched it yet. That's all. That's fair. I'm not a big right. fan of going back and watching the film the same, you know, twice to see like the differences and all. So I haven't gotten around to watching the international version yet. So that's all. Oh. Um, okay. Because admittedly, I've only I, oh. I'm I've only been familiar with Life Force Jeez. for the last couple of years. So um, that's fair. I I think that sometimes I will go and watch if I know exactly where the changes are. I might go and look for them. You know, right. But- I totally get it, but uh, I still have fun with Life Force, and I see it's playing everywhere. It's on Tubi. Um, it's on probably, if you have a Plex, it's on there. I think it's yeah. on Shutter. Basically, it's everywhere. 
Uh, and it's, it's a fun one to watch. Yeah, it's not hard to find. Not hard to find yeah. at all. All right, so number two, oh. number two, number two. Yes, all right, two. so, oh, wow, I'm doing, this is a first for me. I'm actually switching number one, number two on the fly, oh. on the oh, spot. No. Never done this before. Okay, okay, whoa. So, my number my one, well, actually, now, number one is not my number two. Number two, Near Dark. And I'm crazy for saying this because ooh, I've always said ooh, Near Dark wow. is my all-time favorite '80s vampire film. Oh, I said totally, that. Why? Why did I totally forget about this movie? That would definitely be my honorable mentions. But damn, that's a that's a damn good choice. I totally forgot about that movie. I've always said Near Dark. Near Dark is my favorite. I've always been on record saying that. But I have watched Fright Night three times in the last two weeks, and I love it so much. I've watched three times, and I watched the two-and-a-half-hour documentary, You're So Cool, Charlie, or Brewster. Okay. Um, oh, really? So I've I'm kind of got Friday Night on the brain right now. Sure. And I'm kind of, like, obsessed with it kind of a little bit, so it's number one. Spoiler okay. alert. So, yeah, number two is uh, Near Dark. Unfortunately, it's no longer number one, but that's okay because I love it. Um, I, you know what? They're a tie. They're a tie. There it is. Number my. Number two is number one. Number one is number two. Fright Night and and Near Dark, I love equally. They are my number two and my number one together. together. I love them both equally because they're... For, well, Fright Night, for reasons we're going to get into, but Near Dark, again, it's it's just... Um, you, you've got Lance Hendrickson. You've got Bill Paxton. You've got um, Tim Thompson. Jeanette uh, Goldstein, isn't she in that? Jeanette Goldstein. Yeah. Um, Jenny Wright is also in it. Um, directed by, of course, Catherine Bigelow. Uh, written by Eric Red, who went on to direct one of my favorite, excuse me, werewolf movies, um, Bad Moon, which we covered last year on the Horathon. And it's, it's kind of like The Hunger, as in it's a vampire film, but they're not forthright vampires as in the sense where like they're not biting necks and stuff they're they're definitely killing and they're definitely sucking down some blood but they're not doing it in the sense that you see from a, tra- a traditional vampire movie like exhibit a the barroom massacre scene in this movie the bar massacre in near dark is like one of the, the the most you know memorable scenes from the movie and i'd be remiss if i did not mention tangerine dream score it's it's beautiful, and I love the whole Texas feel. How it's shot out, it's like a um, like a midwestern film on the road. Um, it's like you've got the bandits and Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton, of course, and then you got Adrian Pazdar, who's you know Caleb, who is new to this whole vampire thing, and it, it's it. <sighs> It's a movie I got into about 20 years ago. Anchor Bay put it out on DVD in this really cool collector's case. And I remember being at an old convention, one of my first conventions ever, and I won a, a, a copy of it. And oh, nice. I took it home that night with a bunch of my friends. We all hung out, smoked a little, and, and, and were young and dumb and having fun. And we popped that in, and, and that became, like, our thing. Like, we would just hang out, and, like, whenever we would get together and, and socialize or party or whatever, we'd throw one near dark. And then oh. it would just be a movie that I would just always take with me personally. 
and watch. And it's kind of like Vamp. It's it's a, it's a movie that I. It's it's a fun. It's it's um like a comfort food kind of film. It's like a comfort film. You know, See, I, I watch it because like it just makes me feel good. As beautiful. I I remember seeing this movie because I watched it. I watched this and Terrence Malick's Badlands yes. in one night. That's awesome. I love Badlands. And I, when watching uh, Near Dark afterwards, even though they're two different movies, um, the fact that you have these two young lovers, Criminals of the Way, and the way it's set, and the Tetas out back and everything just felt very similar in terms of style for that. Yeah. So, um, and I find the effects to be very cool in Near Dark. It's been years since I saw it. Uh, I do remember that bar room massacre. I thought that was cool. I thought Lance Henderson was great. Uh, yeah. And I had no idea for a long time that it was directed by Catherine Bigelow. But yeah, th- this one I will definitely need to revisit because it has definitely been several years. Uh, and yeah, like I said before, it's, it's not your typical type of vampire movie. No. And there's a lot really of like, a love story. There's a lot. There's a love story between the two young couple, you know, Caleb and, and Jenny Wright's character. Because she accidentally turns him into a vampire. Like, they're, they're, they're young and cuddly and messing around, and she accidentally bites him, and that's how he turns. And, you know, so because of that, they're kind of stuck with him. And he's young and scared, and he doesn't want to, you know, drink any blood, so they're, like, they're getting pissed with him and shit. And I love the mystique between all the characters, Bill Paxton and Lance Henderson, and, and, uh, and specifically. It's like, you know, he's quite Caleb. Adrian Pastor's character is like questioning, like you know, how old he is, and like Van Henderson is talking about how he fought for the South, and, and um, suggested that he and Jesse started the Chicago Fire of, 80, of 1871 and shit. There's, there's like a lot of clues as to where they're from, but they don't forthright say. You know, it's 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 and it's goofy. I, I realize the third act, the whole blood transfusion ending. I, I, I've always oh, sure. turned a blind eye to it. <laughs> you oh. know, I I was just always it's a, it's to me it's whatever. But overall, I think the movie's um, original. I I think it's you know different. It's a cowboy movie. It's yeah. it's, it's, it's oh, a western. It's, it's a western. It's a western. It's a western. Yes, and took the words out of my mouth there. I was epic. Yes, it's a full blown western. It's a fucking um, western. You know, have fun with it. Sort of off topic, uh, because I looked up uh, Jenny Wright, the love interest in this movie, and I recognized her. No, she was in a movie earlier than that, right? Do you remember the movie Pete Floyd, The Wall? Mm Mm-hmm. The movie. Yeah, The Wall. She was the groupie that goes into paints played by Balbert Geldof's room. And, like, look at the stuff. Ah, yeah, that is her. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Yeah, see, see, I remember her... From I Madman and Young Guns Two, those are the two okay. films I remember. Oh, she was also in Lawnmower Man. Oh shit! Okay, I think that was uh, one of her last that, movies actually, because she went went away after the early nineties. Uh, that's too cool. All right, I, I love the Chips from Your Dark. That should have been on my list, but it's been years since I saw that one, and I don't quite remember that one. Um, all right, for my number two, uh, my number two was your number. Five, I believe, or number four. I'm doing Lost Boys. Not number four. That was my number four. Number, number four. Yep. Sorry. That Lost Boys is my number two. Um, I I like this movie because 
you're sort of going through this movie as Jason Patrick's character. And yeah, yeah. Joel Schumacher, the director, he's the star of the you... film. No matter what you want to say, oh. it's Jason Patrick's film. Oh, sure, yeah, hundred percent. But Joel Schumacher, the director, has a way of making the vampires seem likable and intriguing. Like Joel Schumacher is seducing you into the world the same way that Kiefer Sutherland is seducing Jason Patrick mm-hmm. into joining his world. Like he makes vampires seem like so much fun and i remember the tate line too like uh stay up all night sleep all day party all night it's yeah. fun to be a vampire and i remember watching this film on vhs tape with my sister and a few of our friends and just having so much fun being really into it and there's a sequence that happens where uh michael played by jason patrick is trying out food they bought a bunch of chinese food and the noodles turn to snakes <laughs> and you have like the the race turns into flies or what maggots your mind and i was like oh maggots oh. yeah don't worry michael you're eating maggots <laughs> michael it's just race you're just race you're fine and the sequence where they're all like hanging on the rafters um on under the bridge right and then they have to let go and oh uh so it's a coming of age story for Michael, as well as his brothers, played by Corey Haim, um, who's trying to come into his own and right. starts playing with his vampires everywhere. So I, yeah, very much, yeah, I like I liked The Lost Boys very much. I thought that was a hell of a lot of great movie there. Uh, just two it's great a, it's, themes. It's, it's, it's a really fun movie, too. It it's, really is. It is classic there. I, I, I do like the ending. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of doing the same thing, too, because my number one is Fright Night, and I'm kind of going back and forth. Uh, I do have one honorable mention, but I'll mention that, too. But you already mentioned your two and number one. You, yeah, you're, you're you're, saying, I was going to say, you're, you're number one I, now, too. I do my number one. Yeah, it's, it's uh, going to be Fright Night, but I'm going back and forth. I go back and forth between Fright Night and Lost Boys. That's how I am right now with, Van- with, not, with uh, Fright Night and Near Dark. But I guarantee you, once I watch Vamps... That's going to be probably <laughs> Raise Up Higher, and that'll be my number one. But my honorable mention, the other movie I was going to put on my list, and I forgot to mention earlier, is Transylvania Sits 5000. <laughs> Ed Bedgood Jr. and Jeff Goldblum. Jeff, yes, they play reporters uh, yeah. trying to investigate supernatural beings. And I remember my dad taking me to this movie. I'll never forget it. And Gina Davis shows up. Yeah. And she plays very sexy vampire with a very revealing vampire costume, like a stripper vampire outfit that she has. And I remember at the age of like nine or ten, going, "Oh, I'm feeling kind of funny right now. This is nice." And <laughs> I'm sure my dad took me to see the movie, so because he really had a crush on her and he wanted excuse to go see the movie, he's like, "Son, you want to come see a movie with me?" I'm like, I don't know what is it. It's like, it's supposed to be a horror comedy. It should be fun. Don't worry. All right. So I think my dad just really wanted to see the movie just to get a glimpse of Gina Davis. And I don't blame him. But it's funny. It's got, you know, a lot of good comedic actors in there. Uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, Carol Kane is in there. Um, she yeah, plays. Uh, I was going to say Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis pre The Fly. Yes, pre The Fly. Uh yeah, but I think that um, th- and, but it has and, all and your free. Uh, Earth girls are easy. 
yes, because they both <laughs> came out around the same year, too. Uh, it, it's a very wacky, goofy horror comedy, somewhat mm-hmm. in the vein of movies like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, because you have all the creatures there. It's great. It's a monster movie, very much like uh, Monster Squad. It's like if Mel another. Brooks did a vampire movie. Yes, and it's even better than Dracula Dead and Loving It, which is fine. <laughs> it's fine, Stop. yeah. I still think that Transylvania 65,000 is a better movie. Um, yeah, it was on my album mentions. I do enjoy it. I recommend people to watch it, but watch it at your own leisure. Go into it knowing that it's going to be a dumb, stupid 80s comedy. If you're a fan of Monster Squad and you like that table of silly monster movie, uh, but you want it to be a little bit more raunchy. Uh, it almost felt like the airplane guys made this in certain sections. Like a uh, good hybrid of Mel Brooks and Jerry Zucker and David Zucker, Jim Abrams, the guy who did the airplane movie. So, mm-hmm. yeah, check it out. Actual leisure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into Film Effect Breakdown. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted a punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Kicking off the breakdown the way we always do, starting with the casting crew. So first up, we got Chris Sarandon starring as Jerry Dandridge. Chris Sarandon's agent gave him a copy of the script, and he replied, There's no way I can do a horror movie. But he decided to give the script a once-over and was immediately captivated by it. I thought this is one of the best scripts I've read in a long time, Sarandon said. Beautifully constructed. It was obvious that this was a labor of love. It was clear that the writer-director's approach to it was wanting to have fun with the genre without making fun of it. The characters were beautifully drawn. Sarandon was worried about being typecast as a villain, but the script resonated with him because the story was deeper than just an average monster movie. Forgetting about vampirism, what this film is about on one level is an older man trying to take a younger man's girl away from him, commented Holland. Although he liked the screenplay, Sarandon was still leery of working with the first-time director, so he flew to Los Angeles to meet Tom Holland and producer Herb Jaffe. Holland and he had immediate rapport and went on to make several more films together. And Sarandon was awed that Holland had the film so completely mapped out that he literally described the movie shot by shot all the way through. Page by page, scene by scene, it was basically the way he shot it. And then we got William Ragsdale as Charlie Brewster. William Ragsdale had auditioned to portray Rocky Dennis in Mask, but he lost the role to Eric Stoltz. Casting director Jackie Birch remembered his audition, though, and thought he would be right to portray Charlie Brewster. Ragsdale auditioned several more times and ultimately received the news that he landed the part on Halloween night of 1984, beating out several other future stars like Charlie Sheen. So we got Amanda Bierce as his girlfriend, Amy Peterson. The most difficult role to cast was Amy Peterson. There wasn't a perfect girl next door until Amanda Burst walked in, Holland commented. He also didn't have Amy in the story upon finishing his first first draft. It wasn't until Holland realized there isn't a co-leading female character for the story, and that's when he came up with the character of Amy Peterson. 
Stephen Jeffries portrays evil-led Thompson. Due to a mix-up, Stephen Jeffries had an awkward audition for Anthony Michael Hall's role in Weird Science, and he made an indelible impression on Jackie Birch, who suggested him for Fright Night. Although he was not a horror movie fan, Jeffries loved the script, so he called his agent and empathetically declared that he would love to audition for Charlie Brewster. No, Steve, his agent replied. You're wanted for the part of Evil Ed. Jeffries was simultaneously baffled and heartbroken. What do they see in me that they think I should be this? Well, anyway, it worked out. Jonathan Stark is playing Billy Cole. Now, Stark was not a fan of vampire films, but he liked the script. The Billy Cole character was written as a hawking giant, so Stark padded himself with extra clothing when he went into the audition. At the audition, he read the scene in which he was being questioned by the detective, which was written to be played straight. I'm thinking if I'm sitting there being evil, Stark commented, the lieutenant's going to want to get suspicious. Why not throw him off the trail by being funny? Holland liked his take on the character, and Stark was told that he had the part. But because he came in to read on the start of the audition process, months passed before filming commenced and Stark worried that he lost the role. The gap worked to his advantage, however, because it gave him more time to hit the gym and bulk up so that he wouldn't have to wear padding in the film itself. Roddy McDowell is Peter Vincent. The Peter Vincent character was named after horror icons Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. Holland specifically wrote the part for Price, but at this point in his career, Price had been so badly typecast that he had stopped accepting roles in horror movies. Guy McElwain, the then head of Columbia Pictures, suggested Roddy McDowell for the part. McDowell had already starred in the Holland Penn classic, Class of 84, so Holland was immediately receptive to the suggestion. He understood the part, commented Holland, and he also understood what he could do with it and he really wanted it. McDowell is particularly interested in the genesis of the character. In the film, I perform as being in my late 20s or early 30s in the film clips of my old movies, all the way up to my 60s when I was the washed-up has-been. McDowell adding that the role interested him because I had never played anything that old. Holland and McDowell built a lasting friendship, and McDowell eventually invited Holland to a dinner party where he introduced him to Vincent Price who was flattered that the part was an homage to him and commented that the film was wonderful and he thought Roddy did a wonderful job. Next up, we got Art J. Evans as Detective Lennox, the only character of color in the movie, which is something Evans' agent told him when he was unsure if he was going to accept the role or not. He knew from the title that it was a scary movie and that's when he started to have reservations before talking to Tom Holland and accepting the role. So the film itself was written for the screen and directed by Tom Holland. Holland wrote the film for himself to direct, in part because he was so disheartened by the film that was ultimately made from his previous screenplay, Scream for Help, and he had developed enough clout from the successes of his screenplays for Class of 84, Psycho 2, and Cloak and Dagger that the head of Columbia Pictures said, let's take a chance on the hot screenwriter kid, not figuring that Fright Night would be as successful as it ultimately became. It was produced by Herb Jaffe, whose credits also included Motel Hell, Dudes, Made to Order, and Fright Night Part 2. Dudes, it's an underrated Penelope Spears film. Cinematography by Jane Kaiser from Clean and Sober, another underrated film with um, Michael Keaton. A non-stop television work from the 90s and 2000s, and also the film was some kind of wonderful. It was edited by Kent Beta from This Is Spinal Tap, Gremlins 2 The New Batch, the Flintstones, Jingle All the Way, both the Scooby-Doo films, and Jonah Hex. Music by Brad Fidel, who did the Terminator theme and True Lies. Personally, I find Fidel's score to be such an effective enhancement to the film. 
it really makes it much more memorable for all the right reasons. It's one of my favorite elements of the picture overall. Fresh off of working on Jim Cameron's The Terminator, Fidel's score for Fright Night is a composition of synthesizers along with an acoustic piano and an electric violin, not an electric guitar. The violin was Transylvania-inspired, according to Fidel. Instead of going the scarier is more route, he instead composed a score that was more about curiosity instead of being horror-fueled throughout. All right, let's get to the swift summary of the plot. 17-year-old Charlie Brewster is a fan of a horror TV program called Fright Night, which is hosted by former vampire hunter Peter Vincent. One evening, Charlie discovers that his new next-door neighbor, Jerry Dandridge, is a vampire responsible for the disappearances of several victims. After telling his mother, Charlie asks his girlfriend, Amy Peterson, and his friend, Evil Led Thompson, for help before contacting the authorities. Detective Lennox goes with Charlie to Jerry's house to question him, but his roommate, Billy Cole, tells him that Jerry is away on business. Charlie reveals his suspicions about Jerry's vampirism, and Lennox leaves furiously. That night, Charlie is shocked to see Jerry is inside his house, having been invited by Charlie's mother. Later, Jerry visits Charlie and offers him a choice. Ignore his vampiric activities or else. Charlie refuses, of course, brandishing a crucifix at Jerry. When Jerry tries to push him out the window to his death, Charlie stabs him in the hand with a pencil. Jerry destroys Charlie's car in retaliation and threatens Charlie over the telephone. So Charlie turns to Peter Vincent for help, but Peter dismisses Charlie as an obsessed fan. Amy, fearing for Charlie's sanity and safety, hires the Stuart Charlie to prove that Jerry is not a vampire by having him drink what they claim is holy water, but it's only tap water. Jerry has claimed to Peter that drinking actual holy water would be against his religious convictions. Peter discovers Charlie is right about Jerry's true nature by glancing at a pocket mirror and noticing Jerry's lack of a reflection, causing him to accidentally drop the mirror. Peter then flees, but Jerry learns of his discovery after finding a shard of mirror glass on the floor. Jerry hunts down Ed and turns him into a vampire. Then Ed proceeds to visit Peter and tries to attack him, only to be warded off when burnt by a crucifix on the forehead. Meanwhile, Jerry chases Charlie and Amy into a nightclub. While Charlie tries to call the police, Jerry hypnotizes and abducts Amy, who resembles his long-lost love. He eventually bites her. With nowhere left to turn, Charlie attempts to gain Peter's help once more. A frightened Peter initially refuses, but then reluctantly resumes his vampire killer role, Entering Jerry's house, the two are able to repel Jerry using a crucifix, though only Charlie's works since he has faith in his spiritual power. Billy appears and knocks Charlie over the banister while Peter flees to Charlie's house. There, he's being surprised by Ed, who attacks him in the form of a wolf, only to be pierced through the heart with a broken table leg held by Peter. Removing the stake from Ed's body, Peter goes to rescue Charlie and battle Jerry. Charlie's locked in with Amy, who is slowly transforming into a vampire. Peter frees him before she awakens and says the process can be reversed if they can destroy Jerry before dawn. Billy confronts Charlie and Peter and is revealed to be undead. They destroy Billy, who melts into goo and sand. Peter is able to lure the overconfident Jerry in front of a window using a crucifix, which now works due to his renewed faith in his abilities. As the sun rises, Jerry transforms into a bat and attacks Peter and Charlie before fleeing to his coffin in the basement. Charlie and Peter pursue Jerry. The latter breaks open Jerry's coffin and tries to stake him through the heart while Charlie fights off Amy, who has almost completed her transformation. 
By breaking the blacked-out windows in the basement, Peter and Charlie exposed Jerry to the sunlight, destroying him and returning Amy to her human form. A few nights later, Peter returns to his Fright Night TV series and announces a hiatus from vampires, presented a film about alien invaders instead. Charlie and Amy watch the program as they embrace in bed. Charlie gets up to turn off the TV and glimpses red eyes in Jerry's now vacant house, but dismisses them. Unbeknownst to both Charlie and Amy, a new neighbor has just moved in. Alright, let's talk about the film in the form of production history. While writing their script for Cloak and Dagger, Tom Holland amused himself when he conceived the idea of a horror movie fan becoming convinced that his next-door neighbor was a vampire. But he didn't initially think this premise was enough to sustain a story. What's he going to do, Holland asked, because everyone's going to think he's mad. The story percolated in his mind for a year, and finally one day, while discussing it with John Byers, then the head of story development at Columbia Pictures, he finally figured out what the boy would do. Of course, he's going to go to Vincent Price. In that era, many local TV stations in the U.S. had horror hosts, such as Zachary Zvenguli and the nationally syndicated Elvira. So Holland decided that it would be natural for the boy to seek aid for, from his local host. The minute I had Peter Vincent, I had a story. Charlie Brewster was the engine, but Peter Vincent was the heart. Once he'd conceived that character, Holland knocked out the first draft of the script in three weeks. And I was laughing the entire time, literally on the floor, kicking my feet in the air in hysterics. Once his cast was in place, Holland got input from each of the actors and made numerous revisions to the script. Some were slight and some were major, such as the ending, which originally featured Peter Vincent transforming into a vampire as he returned to host Fright Night. The September 6, 1984 draft of the screenplay, which is circulating online, is very close to the final act of the film, but a few more changes were still to come. The cast and crew were given the luxury of having two weeks rehearsal time in late November of 84 prior to filming. Holland blocked out the scenes on a soundstage and the cast performed the entire film like it was a stage play. Having begun his career as a classically trained actor, Holland encouraged the cast to write biographies of their characters so they would completely understand their motivations and be able to be drawn and be able to draw and be able to draw that and be able to draw on that information while filming their scenes. All of the kinks in the story performances were ironed out during the rehearsal period, so when the time the film came, Holland only shot two or three takes of each scene and then moved on. McDowell also did a lot of work on his character and made a conscious decision to pattern his performance after the cowardly lion in the, cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. My part is that of an old ham actor. I mean, a dreadful actor. He realizes it, he realizes it but doesn't admit it. He had a moderate success in an isolated film here and there, but all very bad product. This poor son of a bitch just played the same character all the time, which was awful. And then he disappeared from sight 15 years beforehand. He's been peddling these movies to late night TV, various syndicated markets. He'd go six months in Iowa, six months in Padunk, McDowell commented to Fangoria. He's got such a sad life. He's sort of cowardly, and then he finds his strength as a human being. Despite the pathetic character he was portraying, McDowell was a pillar for the cast and crew. He was kind of Yoda on set, commented Sarandon. Recalled Ragsdale, he had his cameraman on his shoulder, and he was shooting like family movies the whole time. Sarandon recalled that Holland collaborated with, with choreographer Dorian Grusman in shooting a disco dance scene to have 
Spears' character physically changing so that she goes from this rather dewy, innocent-looking girl to this femme fatale. She kind of grows up right before your eyes. The scene also established Amy discovering Jerry actually was a vampire. Principal photography commenced on December 3rd, 1984 and wrapped on February 23rd, 1985. At the time of production, Fright Night was Columbia's lowest budget film and they did not have high expectations for it. So they were focusing all of their attention on the John Travolta, Jimmy Lee Curtis film Perfect, which they were certain was going to be a blockbuster. They never even came to the set, Holland said. I was left alone. It was totally my film without studio interference. Richard Edlin was the head of, head of visual effects, and his team had just completed work on Ghostbusters, which worked to their advantage of Fright Night. Which worked to the advantage of Fright Night. They had made all their mistakes with how to do the mat shots and everything on Ghostbusters with their huge budget, Holland commented. So they really knew how to do the special effects as inexpensively and efficiently as it could be done at the time. The most excruciating part of the makeup process for the cast was the contact lenses. In those days, the lenses were hard plastic, which Steve Johnson hand-painted, throwing some glitter into the mix, recurring, and sanded. The cast would only wear them for a maximum of 20 minutes because they were virtually blind in them, and they were thick and painful and dried out their eyes. A set was made for Stark to wear when he finally had to f when he was in final pursuit of Peter and Charlie, but he kept tripping on the stairs. Holland told him to take one out, and he was then able to perform the scene. Three sets were made for Beers, one of which caused her agonizing pain, which she initially tried to endure. When it finally became too much to bear, she took the contact lenses out, and the crew realized that they'd forgotten to buff them. For the scene in Mrs. Brewster's bedroom, Jeffries kept his contacts in for nearly 40 minutes, resulting in scratches on his eyeballs for months afterward. As originally written, Jerry Dandridge was more villainous, so Sarandon tried to find various ways to humanize the vampire, including suggesting the implication that the, that the Amy character was the reincarnation of his long-lost love. I wanted to give the audience something to hold on to in terms of understanding that this was someone who was at the time, and still is in certain respects, a thinking, feeling human being, Sarandon said. This is a man who has been hunted for all of his post-human existence. Let's talk about Fright Night a little in detail. Let's break this shit down. So the film begins with Charlie and Amy in his room watching Fright Night with Peter Vincent while getting hot and heavy like a couple of horny rabbits. Only thing is we see Amy's unsure of quote-unquote going all the way. Get Peter Vincent. But you love him. But now. But I love I you more. <laughs> Tonight's journey into horror is Blood Castle. And I think it will keep you of your feet. I know it will. It is one of my favorites. Oh, and for a very good reason. I star in it. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, I said stop it! But Charlie, oh boy, Charlie, he would not be a likable character in today's era. He's a, mm -hmm. 
He's the pressuring boyfriend type. I'm surprised he didn't try telling her that blue balls cause testicular cancer or some <laughs> bullshit like that. But then Come on, like, honey. It was doing it. Come on, don't you love me? <laughs> but then she ultimately gives him in. She gives in. And what did she say? Like she's ready for him. Like she's like, I'm ready for you. It's like, yeah, like she's like, I'm not. She's like, I'm I rewatch ready. a sequence. I'm like, what does he? What does he do? I mean, because he kind of leaves. He's too fascinated with peeping on the fucking couple guys bringing in a coffin in the basement next door. He's like, Amy, you gotta check this out. There's a couple of guys bringing in a coffin, and we see Charlie's mom. We meet her, who seems like your typical conversational single mother who's close with her only child and seems oh. to be the big supporter of her son and Amy's relationship. Did your mother make you hot cocoa when you had nightmares too? No, 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 did not, no. Uh, but watching the sequence of um, um, Charlie's mom with him and the girl, it really seemed that the mom really wants her son to have sex. Like, she wants them to have a relationship very badly. She wants her son to get married to this girl and have kids so that she can have grandkids. Like, much more than I would expect a mother to see in these types of movies. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I just felt like the mom really wanted the son to have sex. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you, 100%. I just, I don't see it as like, because the way you're wording it, is like you're making it seem like her, his mom is like, setting it up like she wants him to, so for like, oh. you know, her own personal gain for like grandchildren or something. Not, I think not it's more evil I think way. it's more of in the vein of it's just her and her son. Okay? No okay. bullshit. It's it's two people. It's a woman and her eight, 17, 18 year old high school son who is, you know, becoming his own. He is becoming sexual asexual. And she knows it. And she's not stupid. He has a girlfriend. Yeah. They're up in the room together. They're always alone. And she's she wants to make sure that they're just being safe and smart. That's how okay. I look at it. She's she's not stupid. She knows what's going on. Yeah. She just wants to make sure that he's not they're they're both not, you know, making mistakes, you know? You know, they're just being cautious. I, there you go. I just, I just always figure like after the girlfriend leaves, the mom sits the son down. And she says, son, um, have you tried all sets on her? Well, this is what I like. They're like, mom, I just kind of imagine she was the type of girl that grew up in the 60s, you know, had, like, lovers and everything like that. And she just wants her, she wants to know her son is a good lover to other women. And she's very open, doesn't find anything wrong with it. She's just, like, talking about it is all. And in the vein of the 80s, the whole thing of, like, um, you know, I don't think we're, we're quite at the AIDS epidemic just yet, but, uh, in most 80s horror films, parents did not talk to the kids about sex, and it was just different, is all. What, like she was uh, Sue Johansson or something? <laughs> I don't know who Sue Johansson is. It's just old, this old woman I remember who always talked about sex from like 20 years back. It's, it's this old woman who always talked sex. I don't know. That's... Okay. I, that name just popped up, Max. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but no, I just think it's the. I just think she's not stupid, and she knows what's going on with her son and his girlfriend, and she just wants to make sure that they're being smart about themselves. That's all. Fair um, enough. Because you know, story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. 
Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. That's how me and my mom were. Well, difference is, it was me and my mom, and then I had a brother who was five years younger than me. So it was the three of us. But when I was Charlie's age, I had a girlfriend. And actually, fortunately for my sake, she actually was living here with me at the time. And my mom... We were becoming sexual, and I remember the conversation. And remember, like it was just yesterday, <laughs> as, as embarrassing as it was for me at the time, like I get it today. And I, I, I see my mom as Charlie's mom, just making sure you're smart, you're making good decisions, and you know, you're not making mistakes and having children at such a young age. You know, sure. you're going to have kids, you can have kids, just wait a little bit. You know, you're not even out yeah. of high school yet. That's all. Fair enough. Okay. That's how I see it. So I, I like that. Uh, don't like. Don't hate the girl. Go on, mom. Do your thing. <laughs> and and again, I think Ragsdale and uh, Amanda Burris are both. Uh, they're great as the young couple, Charlie and Amy. Their their chemistry together is collectively what makes their scenes turn out so well together. Um, and when I watch this opening, I'm kind of going all over the place here, but this is uh, it's I'm kind of going off my notes here um the the when the film first starts you got this nice tracking shot through this like it's a, it's a neighborhood set this neighborhood that the camera's panning through it's a very commonly used neighborhood it, it should look familiar to you because it is it's it's been used a bunch of disney it's it's on the disney back plot it was used for uh something wicked this way comes as well oh, nice. as if you've if you ever seen Joe Dante's The Burbs. I have, yep. It's the same yeah. street. Same street as The Burbs. And there's a bunch of other films. I just didn't write them down. But this is a commonly used street. Um, it's actually another film. I remember saying it, but I can't remember what, what episode it was. We were recording, and I remember saying, this looks like the neighborhood from the beginning of Fright Night. So, you know, it just, it all comes back to that. Um... So Jerry Dandridge, his caretaker, Billy Cole, played by Jonathan Stark. First thing that pops up when I see him, with the, uh, Jonathan Stark, comes to mind, is House 2, the second story. Um, he came from the Groundlings, a uh, sketch comedy improv group from out of Los Angeles, including other members like Phil Hartman, Will Ferrell, Kathy Griffin, Jennifer Coolidge, Paul Rubens. Just the name oh, of you. Okay. So yeah, it's it's funny to me that you know he's like this comedic person and he's in this serious horror film as a caretaker. Um, I don't know. And as far as who he's caring, providing for, you couldn't have found a better actor to play Jerry other than Chris Sarandon. He brings such an enchanting personality to the character that's fucking so on point. He's funny, he's got his way with the ladies, and there's something about him that's kind of scary. Um, I think Chris Randon has got the id factor, and I think he's the perfect Jerry Dandridge. I think um, 
there's uh, there's no you other see person like him. To, you never see why I went to but you know Prince Humbertington, the Princess Bride later on too. So yeah, very yeah. very much so. Uh, yeah, I remember remember as like I like to go back to when I was a kid watching this with my folks and uh, having all my my mom and my sister being all swooned by him because yeah he's a very charming handsome individual and i love the fact they switched up for the sequel and everything yeah i very much uh but i like the fact that they don't really introduce him really fully right away they bring the coffins in um you're not quite it's sure it's a mystery it's it's like what is this what's going on is this what i think it is it's not until you know he's in the house talking to the mom and he's already inside and been invited and all that's when we really get to meet him a little bit later on but yeah you're right now it's just it, like we see him because he's being a peeping tom instead of getting hot and heavy with amy he'd rather spy on his next door neighbors bringing in caskets in the basement and you know since we're on the topic of these two billy and and, and jerry let's talk about their homosexual undertones how billy oh. is such a protector to jerry and plays the caretaker role in such a commanding way, the way that he stands tall in each scene that he's a part of. It's, it's I don't know, Stark and Sarandon, they, they didn't pick up on the... the it, Tom Holland apparently had like this intended gay subtext that, that they were developing I, that their characters uh, with. He said... I, I noticed it... Go, go on. Keep going, keep going with this because I got stuff to say here. But Well, um, Chris, I, I had in my notes, I, uh, Chris Sarandon recalled, I didn't have any other sense of it as as being anything other than Renfield and Dracula. I think there was sort of a asexual quality to the relationship that was sort of borderline homoerotic, but not in the sense that it was too creepy. For the scene in which Jerry pulls down the window shade, and it looks like his Billy's about to perform oral sex on him, Stark remembered, I'm cleaning his hand, and Tom Holland said, no, get on your knees. Okay, Tom. And then I saw the film, and I said, oh, okay. And it's a very su- suggestive that, scene, too. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, I do. Um, and that's so weird, because I'm going back and forth between when I saw it as a kid to now when... Yeah, you, you t- like when you watch a. Uh, As a kid, you didn't think that, about that stuff. No, you don't. No, uh, but watching it now, I, I, but being the fact that they're vampires, I don't think he's even sexual. Even though he does have a crush on Amanda Beers' character, um, I always believe that Jerry Dandridge is a person that's very much bisexual. Yes, hundred percent. Very much uh, embraces it. And I know he has a very much deep love for his caretaker so much that when, you know, spoiler alert, he does die, uh, he's hurt and he's crushed by it very much. And you can sense that he lost someone that he truly loves and cares about. Um, I think with his caretaker as well as Amanda Beers, uh, he has this undying, like, legitimate love for them. Uh, yeah, the homosexual subplot just didn't really think of it too much until he died and that sounds kind of weird i know but i yeah and i'm totally fine with it i yeah 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 no reason at all there i it's just something that again that was just added tom holland suggested it and sarandon and start kind of snowballed it you know they kept it going and turned it into this it's 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 
Well, think of this way too, because there's a sequence earlier where um, Charlie sees a beautiful woman yes. come to Jerry's home. Yes. Uh, Hooker, played by Heidi Sorensen. Yep. And when they have the seduction scene, um, Jerry's just kind of going through the motions with her. Um, he's acting the way that he thinks that people should act in these situations. He's sort of like acting. Um, she does not know his sexuality. She thinks that he hired her for gratification, sexual gratification, not knowing that he just wants food mm-hmm. from her. And that's all he sees her as, which is the same way a lot of people who hire sex workers just see them as is just food. And Good point. that's the way he, he's kind of using her the same way that other people use her before. Um, and I thought to be a great thing. Uh, compared, you compare Jerry's love for her, which is the way that he likes food. You know, she's like, hey, I'm hungry. I want a cheap little meal. I'll hire a hooker. They'll come to my home. It's like a pizza. All right. You know, yeah, they're it's fine. a good point. They, but the way he feels for his caretaker and later Amanda is great. Uh, even he has, uh, and I'll, I'll get this later on, when he tries to seduce uh, Ed into joining them. He has general love for Ed. And I think oh, he has We'll some talk love about for, that for sure. And I think he has some love, too, uh, for Charlie in a way, too. Like, I think he sees Charlie <laughs> as a challenge, but at the same time, he sees... Charlie as someone that could be maybe turned and swayed a little bit. Maybe he sees himself in Charlie. He just likes like, fucking with I, Charlie, that's all. Well, well that too, but <laughs> I think he kind of like sees the way that maybe he used to be in kind of a way. Like, I know he's, I know he's fucking with him. Yeah. Changed the... I, I feel like we but can have, know, we can keep this conversation going when we get to the part where um, okay. they, they, they become confrontational in the bedroom. Okay. Um, but speaking of Billy Cole, caretaker let's have the conversation now what is he exactly he's not exactly a vampire because he's wandering around outside in the daylight is he like igor like renfield like Sren suggested like what is he because he's definitely a creature because at the end the way he goes it's is is he like turn is he like a slow turn like he's i thought he was like a familiar okay i mean it's not for but it's he, not out it's 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 not you know outright he, said what he is no he, but he does have like supernatural abilities but we're not quite sure what it is per se yeah like um i don't know maybe he does did get bitten just enough so he can have some right power but he doesn't suck on any blood at all no um he doesn't Maybe get hungry. Some- he doesn't talk about, you know, wanting a piece for himself to nibble on nothing. It's 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 Maybe it's, it's-, it's just kind of like open ended. It's it's just a question it's not even a question. It's just it's kinda of like the characters in part two. They don't really give them a backstory. They're just there. So we can just chalk it up as that. Um Maybe he can, like, maybe when uh, Mary Jerry sucked his blood, but he didn't make him suck his blood, so he doesn't have any cravings, but he still has, like, the powers of staying up all night, you know. Or he could start, he could begin the film when we first see him, he's a human. 
But then yeah. at the end, when everything goes down and he finally dies, by that point of the film, he's been turned. Jerry's finally given in and said, okay, now I can turn you. Now you can become oh, a vampire. That's a good point. And we just that. never saw that. I mean, that's yeah. another possibility. So, we're just, you know, we're just shooting off friendly suggestions. Just, what could just a ball there, you know, yeah, major things, you know, people a, for to hear and... Just having a conversation, that's all. <laughs> so then the film becomes oh. a game of cat and mouse between Jerry and, and Charlie. Now, I love it when mm-hmm. Charlie goes for the evil Ed. More on that in a minute. For He goes to him for help and gives him the cross and leaves him tips on how to kill vampires. Only for Charlie to come home and see that his mother's already invited Jerry in. Which means all bets I, are now off. <laughs> that sequence was so... I have to stop. That sequence where you just kind of see her talk. Like, hey, we got a new neighbor over here. Look who I just invited in. And Boom. you just see Jerry's hand. Yes. Just his hand sit in the chair. And voice. it turns around and it's just got this bright smile on his face. And Charlie's like... Did you invite him in? Like, well, of course I did, because the whole thing, you got to invite mm-hmm. the vampire into his home, their home, and, uh, and, of course, and I think his mother's just totally smitten with him because she's single, new guy moving to the area. Um, I do like, earlier in the film, she did mention that he, he, he does interior design it, so that means he must be gay. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, totally it's, crush on him. it's, it's great. And then later on, you know, Jerry enters the house and walks through Charlie's mother's room first, and she's sleeping. She's got the night mask on, the sleeping mask. And then there's this really cool effect when he goes, and I missed it for the longest time, and it wasn't until I finally watched that documentary and they, they, they talked about it, and I was like, oh, yeah, that is a shot. And he walks past his mom when he's sleeping, or when she's sleeping, rather, and mm-hmm. Jerry goes to leave the bedroom and he walks past the bedroom mirror and there's no reflection obviously and it's like how do they get that so they tried to do it on set and it just didn't work practically so what they ended up doing was cutting out a hole where the, where the mirror is and they put it in a blue screen and they that's, oh. how, that's how they accomplished the, the reflectionless shot is they put they, instead of the mirror being there it's, it's, it was a it's digital shot a, a compressed shot with the blue oh, screen. Nice. So, and I love how Jerry's whistling Sinatra's Strangers in the Night as he's entering Charlie's room. He wanted Jerry to whistle Why You Work rather than Strangers in the Night when first confronting Charlie. Oh, no, no, no. That No, that would not work. The Strangers in the Dark has a very seductive feel to it. It's a very much what he would be whistling. Oh, okay. Yes. Disney yeah. wouldn't give their permission to use the song. That's why they didn't. I'm glad they did not because... It, <laughs> It would make it way too comical. Do, 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 do. Yeah, it's not what I picture Jerry to be yeah. All right, he's not the type of guy that would just be. I mean, I'm sure he probably does that while he's maybe like killing people. But ah, uh, no, and it just doesn't match his vibe. They end up essentially becoming like fighting brothers in the bedroom until they finally wake up Charlie's mother. But of course she can't do anything because Jerry made sure that he broke the hinge on the door so she couldn't get out of the bedroom. And she's stuck in there and then they're fighting and it's it's it becomes a thing where like he's just like look Charlie, forget about me. Just forget about all this and I'll forget about you and that's it. And in the moment, you want to believe Jerry. You really do, but it's like, 
a contract killer. You gotta cover all your tracks, you know? I, I don't you buy for a second that he would let Charlie just go and let bygones be got bygones. I, I don't. Do you know what this reminds me of? The whole argument that Jerry has with Charlie and you mentioned him about being a contract killer. It reminds me of Clatterall with Tom Cruise and <laughs> Jamie Foxx. I love that movie so much. I do too. A great feature. Hell yeah. Uh, but we just talk about the contract killers. Like, you know, don't worry about me. You know, just I'm going to do my thing. I'll leave you be. Uh, that reminds me of the elements right there. Uh, just, just somewhat. Uh, right, but you but know, in the end, it's it's it, there. You can't be. trust them. You know, it's no. and that's my point. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, please. we got the whole thing where Jerry's holding Charlie out the window, pretty much, and he's about to fucking lodge his head off. But then Jerry catches the pencil in the hand. And that's what, you know, fucking really, he, he gets like, oh, you hurt my hand, and he fucking flies off and shit. And it's a great effect. I love the practical great. effects in this movie. Oh, that's brilliant work there. It yes. is, it is. Um, so let's have our Evil Dead conversation. Ned, he's such an ostracized lost boy. Stephen Jeffries, again, is ultimately the best possible person that could have, you know, they could have found the... Who comes off as quirky and as weird as Jeffries. He wants to be Charlie's pal. He's a lonely soul, but he can also be an asshole too. And I love how much Steven zones in on the character. And uh, he just completely goes all in. And I'm here for it. Like, I love this character. I love Steven Jeffries' performance. I really enjoyed his part in this movie. Uh... Kyle can be a tad 
annoying sometimes there, but you know that he generally has a care and love for Charlie. He just, just I don't believe in vampires. He just likes a guy that's like a lot of fun, uh, goofy, silly. Uh, yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of friends that I had. I'm sure at times I acted it very much like he did at certain points in my life. Uh, yeah, just generally thought he was good. Um, it just he's the high point of the movie a lot. He's that uh, jolt of caffeine in this movie sometimes that the movie kind of needs. It needs that character. It needs that hyper character that he is. Um, I wish that he... But there's... I don't want... I don't know what I did to this now because we haven't discussed it yet. Um, but when he does change over, um, there's like moments there you felt compassion and hmm. sorrow for the guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, 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 I agree it, 100%, and we'll get to them specific, specifically, we'll get to them when they occur. Um, but watching it with him, it's like he's a character that I don't want to admit that I am, but I am him of a few times. And well, Stephen Jeffries... I've known people like him. Well, I don't know how familiar you are with Stephen Jeffries. Not really. I just know him from this movie. That's it. I remember him from both of this... And a film a few years later called 976 Evil that was directed by Robert I've, England. I heard that he directed it, but I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, I have seen it. Um, I, I, I kind of grew up watching it. It was a Showtime film all the time. It was all in there. And it had uh, Leslie Dean, who was in Freddy's Dead. And it was directed by, like I said, Robert England. And Stephen Jeffries is the lead. And he plays a character named Hoax. And he is the same character as Evil Ed, essentially. So... Okay. It, it's it, it's like... He doesn't know how to play anybody else but this kind of person. In the alts, he came back and was popping up in a bunch of like independent horror stuff, like nothing mainstream. Nowadays, he's doing a lot of appearances, obviously. You know, Evil Ed, you know, a lot of conventions doing Friday Night Reunions with, with Jeffries. I know... Back uh, during the pandemic, 2020 was the 35th anniversary of Fight Night, and they had a cast reading. Um, they had, uh, the entire cast reunited uh, on Zoom for a um, uh, script reading, and he was on there. And um, looks good, minus the hairpiece he's wearing these days. But bringing it back, he's just this quirky, oddball character who's like this... If I had one negative thing to say about the portrayal, about this character or Jeffries in general, um, as it pertains to Fright Night, is the first scene or two we see him, I feel the acting's really off. I feel he's kind of awkward, and it's just it does it just doesn't feel kind of right. Like the first kind of interactions we see him having with uh, with Charlie. I just feel kind of awkward, like they kind of shot them scenes earlier on and just didn't, I don't know, get, maybe they felt they got the right feel, but when I watch it, I just feel differently about it. I feel the later that we see him in the movie, like when he starts appearing more with Charlie and Amy, and then obviously when he becomes Evil Ed, that's when he is becomes everything I 
said about him and his portrayal. Yeah. Like he just, you know, went all in and, you know, bashed in this character and is incredible. And that's how I feel. Um, I, the, the first couple of times though, I feel he's a little uneasy, like a little, it's, it's a little off putting his, his, uh, his acting. Um, he, f- he, f- he's trying to put his persona at like a 10 cause he really wants to be like a very big, and I'm like confused with names right now, but he wants to be, um, oh gosh, from, the very uh, I'm not gonna remember names right now, uh, but he, he wants to be a very f- famous like oh gosh it's horrible I can't believe I'm bl- blanking on this guy's name right now why can I remember this this is totally bad all right I'm gonna come back to that because I can't even think of it right now. Uh, Who are you thinking about? What movie's he in? No, he, he, the, Casablanca. Um, the um, uh, I'm gonna know his name was I. Casablanca. Humphrey no, Bogart? yeah, uh, no, not uh, no. Uh, Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre. Kind of reminds me of, like Peter Lorre in a way. Um, just that, uh, or he has a very much um, off the wall energy that I can see uh, someone. Uh, gosh, oh. <laughs> I was gonna say I was like a Jeff Goldblum character, but oh, that's not really right. Uh, but. He has, like, the energy of, like, a very hyperactive cartoon character in the first part of the movie. That's why I kind of saw him as a very super, like, hi, Charlie, just very just off the wall, it seems like. And I kind of want him to amp up to that when he becomes Evil Ed. I don't know. I just felt his chemistry with Charlie was just a little bit off here. It's good. I just did not see how these two would become friends. Yeah, I can see that. Just um, somewhat there, yeah. It, that it, that is kind of like it's, a red flag it's, it's, a little bit. It's a small, it's a small nitpick. Right there. It's not even yes. that much of a nitpick because it's a '80s movie, and they always have like the goofy sidekick. You know, he kind of reminds me a little bit like Crispin Glover. That was the name I'm thinking of, Crispin Glover. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. Like the awkward type, a, um, awkward guy, but just kind of like a lot, like Crispin Glover. Mixed with Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> okay, yeah. Is the best way I can kind of put those two things together. Like, the energy of Bobcat Goldthwait with the awkwardness of Crispin Glover just really super amped up. And it felt more of, like, a character instead of a person. I got you. I'm, putting, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I got That's, you. It, it takes me off my brain to put things together like that, and I apologize. But, yeah, it just kind of felt like because both um charlie feels like an actual person like a real person jerry dandridge even though he's a vampire he feels like an actual person and it just seems like you are the comet psychic you are just the comet psychic there's nothing else going there for you you may have a past you may have a house you may have parents we don't care you're just mainly the comet psychic and that's all you're really going to be um, you're, you're, we like you, but we don't care if you get killed or not. <laughs> That's what I feel about Ed. Like, we know this is a vampire movie. Most likely, you are going to die, and we, as the audience, don't have any real big stake in you. No pun intended. Uh, but we don't care if you get killed or not. Nah, like it makes you, sense to me. It makes total sense to me. I gotcha. But we, we don't care. 
Yeah. But, so that's how I kind of figured. But I feel like we waited long enough to have this conversation now. Let's talk about Peter Vincent. So Charlie, along with Amy and Ed, go to Peter Vincent for assistance. Mr. Vincent. Mr. Vincent, could I talk to you for a minute? Please, Mr. Vincent, it's very, very important. What do you want me to sign? Pardon me? Well, you do want my autograph, don't you? No. No, sir, I was curious about what you said last night on TV, you know, right? about believing in vampires. What about it? Were you serious? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, none of your generation seems to be. What do you mean? I have just been fired because nobody wants to see vampire killers anymore, or vampires either. Apparently, all they want are demented madmen running around in ski masks, hacking up young virgins. Now, if you would excuse me. I believe in vampires. That's nice. If only there'd been a few more of you, perhaps my ratings would have been higher. In fact, I have one living next door to me. Would you help me kill him? Pardon me? Well, you know the murder of that girl that happened a few days ago? Yes. The guy who lives next door to me did it. He's a vampire. If this is your idea of a joke, I am not amused. Mr. Vincent, I am not joking. I am I'm deadly serious. You would excuse me. But Mr. Vincent, you have to believe me. I'm telling the truth. Come on, you just said you believe in vampires. I lied. You Please. will leave me alone. You have to listen to me. The vampire tried to kill me last night and trashed my car when he didn't succeed. Now, he's going to be back after me tonight, Mr. Vincent. And if I don't get help, he's going to kill me. Mr. Vincent. And, of course, Peter doesn't buy into the story for one second, but is still curious enough to play along. Peter Vincent is such a thespian who plays the role of the vampire hunter in such a memorable way. McDowell, Roddy McDowell, is Peter Vincent. You can't ask for a better performance here. I know McDowell is remembered for many other performances, other, from, other, you know, from his theater work to Caesar and the Planet of the Apes films. Um... Or Cornelius, sorry, not Caesar. Cornelius. Um, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, Poseidon Adventure. You ever seen Overboard with Goldie Hawn? He's in yes. there. Yes. Yes, he was. Yes. And of course, Shockma. But I think Roddy McDowell is fucking incredible. I, I love the way he plays this cunning, like, this true, like, like I said, like a thespian type vampire hunter who's serious about everything, but then when it comes to getting down the brass tacks, the real deal, he curls up into a ball and turns into the biggest chicken shit. I love it. <laughs> I love the way he's written. Um, I, I love the way McDowell just performs the character. It's just lo I, I love seeing his transition on screen. He's so, you know. He's got all the will, all the courage. You know, he's got a show where he's telling people, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of like hosting these vampire hunter tales and everything. And, and now he's not only is he hosting, but he's also acting in them. But now 
once he sees gets a piece of the real deal, he's like, uh, no, I'd rather not. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't believe. I can't believe, you know. Um, it's like, Jared Andrews, you got to have faith. <laughs> yes, because they go to the house to try to see if he's a vampire or not. And I knew right away that, you know, because um, Peter Vincent, which is such a great name, because it's a combination of both Peter Cushion yes, and Vincent Price. Price. Yep. Which, which is perfect. Uh, but I love that they go to the house and uh, uh, Charlie asks him if that's real holy water. And he says, of course it is. And he makes up this tale, knowing full well that he did not get baptized for right. Blaster anything like that at all and Jerry can totally sense that he can see that this guy has no belief whatsoever doesn't believe anything he did stand Jerry becomes standoffish whenever Charlie confronts him about things or wants him to hold a cross he stands back right but with um, Peter Vincent Jerry's just like open arms like of course you know I'll do the test that you want me to take no words whatsoever I'll drink this holy water a little hesitant at first but still does it anyways and takes the cross thing totally brilliant uh, for me real quick I love how they had that whole setup to prove you know that he's not a vampire and all that after they already had the bedroom encounter scene it's like, no shit he's a vampire. I mean, he's already seen him in pretty much half-creature form, but we're still going to play along. Ah. Mr. Vincent. I've seen all of your films. And I found them very amusing. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and, um, who are these two attractive young people? Ed Thompson. Ed. Amy Peterson. Vampires are supposed to do, Charlie? <laughs> Please. It's a vampire, Brewster. God, he's neat. Ah. Please excuse the mess. I uh, I haven't finished unpacking. Where do you keep your coffin? Or do you have more than one? Charlie. It's all right, Mr. Vincent. I'm uh Quite used to it by now. As you may or may not know, Charlie even brought the police over a few days ago. Charlie, you did. Damn right I did. Only they didn't believe me any more than any of you. But you'll believe me in a second. Mr. Vincent, give him the holy water. Charlie, there's no reason to be rude about this. It's perfectly all right, Mr. Vincent. Where is it? And are you sure that this is um, holy water? Positive. I saw Father Scanlon bless it down at St. Mary's myself. 
Get ready to run. Protect you with this. Well, bottoms up. Satisfied? Oh, totally. Well, now, Charlie, you saw that. Are you convinced now that Mr. Dandridge is not a vampire? It can't be. But, but, but Charlie, you saw it. Now, you know as well as I do that no vampire can drink blessed water. And it wasn't blessed. Are you calling me a liar, young man? If he's not a vampire, have him touch this. Oh, Charlie. You've made a fool of yourself once, so there's no reason to compound the error. Yes, Charlie. You've already caused your friends quite enough pain. You wouldn't want to cause them anymore. I mean, at the audience, at the audience, you maybe want to believe he's not really a vampire. I don't know, but you know he is, and we're hoping right. that. But it's too soon for big confrontation to happen, so right, who knows? Uh, but thinking about Peter Vincent, and he kind of reminds me in a way of like Mister Rogers, if he had a horror talk show, in a way, very nice guy. Uh, and then becomes very brave as well, and then becomes like a, a shady do type of character from Scooby Doo. Um, yeah, I I just thought of him just being just a person that's brave on camera, and he yeah he does get scared, but he still manages to get things done, which right. I appreciate very much. Like even though he wants to run away, he does stand up and fight the vampires. He does what needs to be done. And I appreciate that very much. And he's, you know, the ones that didn't quite believe Charlie. And he thinks that Charlie may end up killing his neighbor because um, his girlfriend and Ed go to see Peter Vincent saying that, Hey, look, uh, my boyfriend thinks his next door neighbor's a vampire and he's probably going to kill him. You got to make sure he doesn't do this. And they're looking out for Charlie's well-being. And I love the sequence after he does all the tests on them. And like, you see... Charlie, he's not a vampire at all after, so we can go now. So everyone leaves, and then he's looking through his mirror and he's got the great shot where he doesn't see Jerry's reflection in the mirror at all. He drops the mirror, it breaks. And that's what changes uh, everything. Uh, Him yeah. being a klutz and dropping his mirror, and from the broken piece seeing that there's no reflection. No, he drops it because he sees there's no reflection. Nope. That's yep. right. So is that is if they're all right? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just a clutch. Like, are you sure? He knows the way he looks over and sees. And sees like, oh, he knows. You can just tell from his from Sarandon's mannerism and the way he's speaking to him at that point. It's like, yeah, he's got to know. But I wanted to call a reference to it. But I love how almost every time we see Jerry, he's eating an apple. And the reason for that oh. is because Sarandon did research in the bats and discovered that most of the world's fruit are bats or um, frugivores. So we concluded that Jerry had a lot of fruit bat in his DNA, 
and that explains why his character is frequently munching on apples, which Sarandon decided his character was using to cleanse his palate after draining blood from his victims. So basically every time he's eating an apple, he had just consumed blood from somebody. And that's why we see him eating an apple most of the scenes. Oh, that is, I did not know that at all. And I know that, I did not know that about bats. I always thought bats were carnivores. Ah. Going back to the topic of Chris Sarandon, he plays the part of Jerry so cool. Like he's casually walking around, yawning, just eating his fruit whenever he's not sucking down blood from the woman's vein. And I know Chris Sarandon's had a very lengthy career, but I'll argue any day of the week that Jerry Jandrich is the role that he was born to play. How iconic he is, no one could ever pull off his character the way that Sarandon does it. No one else can pull off that cardigan either. He's ridiculously good looking. He's got the perfect sense of humor outside of being a dangerous creature of the night. Like, I, I, I love, like I said before, I, I think Chris Randon was born to play Jerry Dandridge. I'm, I'm just trying to think of other actors from the era that could play him. William Hurt? No. Um, definitely not Jeff Goldblum. Um, <laughs> not uh, Jack Nicholson. Um, it's hard for me to really think of anyone that could play him very well. And, you know, I do think that Colin Farrell in the remake did a pretty solid job, even if the rest of the casting wasn't all that great. Uh, but I'll get into that later. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of actors back in the 80s that could have done that. And I really... Yeah, I, I can't think of anyone but uh, Chris Randon doing that and also i don't know was chris i don't know what else chris Strandon was in before this movie well the big I mean, film before this was dog day afternoon he was that's uh, right he was the lover of al pacino's yes, character he was pacino's lover oh, in dog day okay. afternoon that was the big one. Oh, i mean chris Strandon, his, his whole filmography i mean even before that uh before this you know like i said dog day afternoon the sentinel um Broken Promise, Fright Night, Princess Bride, Child's Play, and then I'm I'm just naming off some other films. Have you ever seen The Resurrected? No. It was was Dan O'Bannon. He's only done two. He's only directed two movies, Dan O'Bannon. One was Return of the Living Dead, obviously. And the second, The Resurrected, which was a a directed video film that came out in 91. Okay. I actually just watched it for my first time about six months ago. I, I, I did a blind buy on it because Screen Factory put it out on Blu-ray and DVD. And I picked it up for like 12 bucks on Amazon and I watched it. And pretty yeah. good. Him, John Terry, and uh, Robert Romanus from uh, Fast Times Richmond High uh, are in it. And it's, it's you know, it, it's... um. Uh, what's his name? Um, Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. Um, H.P. Yes, thank you. It's 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 a Lovecraft tale. Oh, okay. So, it's yeah, it's it's got some great practical effects. Um, Chris Sarandon kind of does. Uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of a spoiler, but you know, playing double duty here. Uh, but it's a good movie. Really under really underrated. It's an adaptation of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Check it out. I, and then, of course, he voiced Jack Skeleton. Everyone remembers yep. that film, Nightmare Before Christmas. We'll be covering that later on this month on the podcast. And then Bordello of Blood is another film that I was a sucker of when it came out back in the 90s. Uh, Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood. I like Bordello of Blood. It's fun. 
And he's the reverend in the yep. movie. Uh, fucking Reverend J.C. Current. Speaking of Corey Feldman, he's in that too. Yeah. Um, Greer, you know, glad that was working, but I totally agree that Jerry Dandridge is his iconic role. That's the role that everyone yeah. sees him in is that. And I just can't picture mm-hmm. any other actor from that time period, like Tom Berenger, no, I, I'm blanking on, like, other actors. No John... one that can at least play it the way Sarandon does. Like, the, the what Sarandon does to the character, to the role, like, I just think it's something that no one else was doing back in the 80s. And he's not trying so. to do, like, a Bella Lugosi No, he's doing his own thing. He's being himself, if anything else. And that... That's all we can ask, you know? I, I just think it's fucking cool. I, I love it. I love it so much. Uh, but let's move on a little bit. Um, let's talk about, you know, Evil Ed, his walk home to the other side after pranking Charlie one last time. So at this point, we've talked about Evil Ed, and he's now at this point of the film associating with both Amy and Jerry, or not Jerry, uh, Charlie, um, as well as Peter. Um, as they all are kind of like sense uh, who's right here is it Jerry or is it Charlie is it Jerry or is it Charlie mm-hmm. and at this point Jerry uh, no, I keep on saying Jerry Charlie Amy and Ed yep. are now going home they're on the street and they're saying goodbye and this is when Evil Ed does his one last scare where he's screaming acting like he's being pranked and they think you're fucking... It's basically Boy Who Cried Wolf. Oh, yes. Only this time, this is really happening. He sees Jerry, who's slowly walking, and Jerry offers Ed a life that he's no longer picked up on or beat up. He's like, you know, I can offer you a life. You're no longer picked on. You're no longer beat up. All you have to do is take his hand. Yes. Take my hand. That is... All you gotta do is take Jerry's hand. It's a very seductive scene. The way Sarandon's calm presence gives his character very dangerous vibes as he's stalking and approaching Ed, who's running scared until he's not, knowing that Jerry's after him. And then the way Ed slowly gives in before being turned off screen, it's very forthtelling in that Jerry knows exactly what he can give Ed if he takes his hand. And the way Ed just slowly gives in and... It, it it this is I think it's a great fucking scene. It's it's just it's the way it's drawn out. Um, you know, what are we gonna this say? is such brilliant direction 
from Tom Holland yes. in the scene. Because in most other movies, you would have Ed run away and you would have Jerry appear at certain spots. There would be a lot more jump scares. You would just hear Ed scream off screen and that's it. You would, yeah. Well, you do it here, but you actually see what happens. You see what happens too, but I think that Tom Holland sort of like uh, twists the tropes on horror films and changes things up uh, by that sequence you mentioned about Jerry saying that, hey, look, I know you've been picked on. I know that no one appreciates you. No one understands you. And Ed listens to this. And he listens and hears, and he's like, yeah, no one does believe me. Maybe this person actually does want to listen to me. Because maybe he hides under that facade of like having to be the goofball and making jokes and laugh every time and do stuff because right. he just wants people to hear him, understand him, and no one does. And now he meets one person that does. And at this point, Ed does not believe in vampires. He does not believe there's actual vampire around. He just hears the voice of someone that for the first time in his whole entire life actually wants to listen to him and hear him. And Jerry's like, I help take all this pain away. I'm thinking that Ed believes that Jerry may be a drug dealer and saying these things that, you know what, I have what you need. I can take all these things away from you. No one will laugh at you. No one will pick fun at you at all. And so maybe Ed's thinking that Jerry's a drug dealer and he says, all you gotta do is just take my hand. So maybe Ed's thinking that, fine, I'll give him to it, you know, maybe, or uh, maybe in a way it's, uh, and I'm going off on limb right now too, but uh, maybe Ed has some homosexual thoughts. Towards yeah, Charlie's possibility. right there too. And he doesn't it, quite it's, know. It's very, it's very suggestive. Yeah, doesn't quite know how to deal with those feelings. And Jerry's like, "Hey, look, I've been you were you were before. All right, so all you got to do is take my hand. Everything's gonna be fine." And that's you know the end of Ed at that moment there too. But I love the way that Tom Holland shoots that sequence because. It made yeah, Jerry seductive in a way, too, because you listen to Jerry saying that stuff, and he, you're like, you know what, yeah, we've all had those feelings of being underappreciated and and unloved, and we just sometimes want someone to listen to us, and that's all we want, and nothing to do with, you know, sexual orientation sometimes, we just want someone to listen and to love us, to hug us and whatnot, and, you know, so we need that, and Ed did not get that type of love in his life, we don't know anything about his own home life or anything of that nature, um, and I think that Jerry speaks to a certain part of him. And I love hearing Brad Fidel's score playing in the background as this scene's occurring. Too. The the guy who wrote oh, yeah. the Terminator score. Yep. And True Lies, a bunch of other James Cameron same. movies, right? He, he did a mm-hmm. bunch of James Cameron features. He did a, he did a few. Um, he, he did pretty much. He did True Lies. He did Terminator. True, True Lies. I think was the last yeah. one that he did. It was actually it was the last one he did was True Lies. So, but he did. He was James Cameron's guy for a little mm-hmm. while. You're right. But yeah, this the um, he this he did the score for this after Terminator. Um, it like I said, it uh, it's beautiful playing in the background of the scene here, and then not it's pretty much instantly after he turns Ed. We see Ed attack Peter Vincent. 
And it happens almost immediately after Jerry turns him. It's like Ed becomes a vampire, and his first order of business is to take out Peter Benson. So Ed taunts Peter before he attempts to kill him, and you know he's knowing that you know, he knows that Peter is having ongoing sanity issues just from learning about Jerry's true form earlier in the evening. And I like how they seemingly added extra baggage under McDowell's eyes in this scene. But for the rest of the film, from this scene on, like they give off like a more restless and tiresome look to him with his eyes because he's, he's clearly got like extra baggage like makeup that, that they added to his face yeah. to, to make it look like he's just clearly <laughs> physically straw tired from you know all this insanity happening around him all at once and him just taking it all in and knowing not what he's not he doesn't know what to believe he's God, he's being forced to believe things he's never had to believe even before that he just before this instance he was just all make believe but I, I like this scene it's it's short and sweet Ed's new personality comes off pretty great as well um, and it's it's uh, just this fucking attack that it didn't doesn't doesn't really go anywhere um in, in fact, while this is happening, we got the club radio nightclub scene, which is, uh, I don't know, man. You want to talk about a sexy scene? This dance between Amy and Jerry, whew, it has lived rent-free in my head ever since I gained a mature appreciation for this movie. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's so weird now watching because when I watched the movie as a kid, I had no idea who any of these actors were. All right. Right. And it wasn't until like a few years later, I was watching TV, and there's a little show on a network called Fox. And Fox, <laughs> I knew you were going with this. Fox debuted a show called Married with Children. Yep. And I saw Amanda Beers in this, you know, who plays the love interest in this movie, as mm-hmm. this very uptight. Um, house, uh, this housewife to her working husband, uh, very much a Karen before Karen was a thing, um, and it was just yep. such a weird twist. So much that I completely and forgot. It was only two years after. Two this. years after this, just two it, years. It was so bizarre that I completely just forgot that she was in Fright Night. Like two different actors. Like a lot of times when you watch actors, yep. you know it's that actor. If you see them in different roles, you know it's that actor. But Amanda Pierce, give credit to which credit's due. That woman is an amazing, amazing actor. And she can do just completely different roles. And that's one of the main reasons why she could not do part two. is Because she was working on the show. Which, understandable, the show became a big hit. And she made a lot of money from doing it. And also she was directed episodes from Married Children for many years afterwards. And that became her... Bread and butter. Um, Actually, oh, there is a story that pertains to her what? in part two. And while you're kind of right, but there's also it, it has a lot to do with Tom Holland. Okay, because Holland originally was going to do the the sequel. Oh, he was okay. with them, and then when Holland couldn't do it, that's when suddenly the script changed oh. and Amy was no longer a part of it. Gotcha. Okay. Because according to according to Amanda Beers, she would have done it, but it was, it like like I, like I said after um after Holland 
left the project and it became um, Wallace's, the script changed. And while Charlie was still in it with Peter, there was a new love interest and it wasn't Amy. Oh. So she was written off. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. That's all. Well, so that wasn't Amy Beer. That wasn't Amanda Beer's cho- choice. choice. If it was up to her, she would have done it. Oh, damn. Oh, that, now I want to know what. And, that, and, that, and that's coming from her words herself on the documentary. Oh, okay. I'm. So. Boy, just what would have been? That would have been fascinating to know. I know, right? More. But yeah, it didn't bat that dance sequence. Yeah, it's very, very seductive. Uh, kind of weird. Because I remember this, like, a year later watching Labyrinth with David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly having kind mm-hmm. of a weird seductive dance of an older guy and a younger gentleman because, I mean, Chris Randon is... I'm pretty sure, like, the actors are close to the same age, but the characters were, you know... Difference a May December type of romance, you know, he's a old vampire and you know, young high school student right there. Uh, but yeah, it's very, very seductive. Got that story from Brad Fidel in there. I uh, did enjoy it. Uh, I don't remember it being as a rock the first time I saw it, just because I was a young kid and I did not think that I was more worried about her. I was worried about her getting bitten than I was, you know, the whole seduction thing. I just wanted to say also, Sarandon is so goddamn charming in his skin-tight shirt, and Beerus's is her initial innocence is adorable, and they really get into the number once Evelyn King's Give It Up starts to play, and I'm just totally captivated by what's happening on screen. This dance scene, it's, I don't know. I know they initially used David Bowie's Criminal World, that's off of Let's Dance, as a contemporary music track for this, the when they actually shot this scene, that's the, the music they okay. used. Um, they loved it so much that they wanted to include it in the actual film. However, they could not afford Bowie's price. Oh, okay. Um, but also, oh. I wanted to call attention to the bouncer, the the black guy. Like it's the club who gets his throat slashed by Jerry. Yeah. You ever, did you recognize I, I, him? I, I not really. It's Nick Savage. He played the lead biker from the gang in Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. Really? Yeah, did part three, there's a biker gang that just randomly shows up, and he's the leader, he, but, and it's it's the same guy. He was like gained a little bit of weight or something like that. I don't know. Okay, I, I... No, 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 the guy... No, 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 the waking guy you're thinking of is the guy who's on the steps. Wrong guy. Oh. That's, that's, there's two black guys. Yeah. The guy, the, the, the heavyset guy, that's a football okay, player yeah. on the steps. That's who you're thinking okay. of. No, the the guy who gets his actual throat slashed oh, okay. and he gets thrown into the crowd, yeah. that's the guy I'm talking oh. about, Nick Savage. He's the guy who was the biker in Friday the 13th Part 3. Okay. Oh. So, and then the nightclub set was actually a former hardware store near the studio, which had been renovated for the... Uh, Frankie goes to the Hollywood sequence and Brian the Palmas body. Double. Holy shit! The yeah, no, same club. Oh, that okay. That's pretty cool. Okay, I, I do remember yep. body double in that sequence there. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the scene ends with Jerry taking Amy and telling Charlie he wants he and Peter Vincent at his house tonight. If he ever wants to see Amy alive again.
lose your temper, Charlie. It isn't polite. You can't kill me here. <laughs> I don't want to kill you, Charlie. I want you to bring Peter Vincent to my house, just the two of you. That is, if you ever want to see Amy again. And they take off with Evil Ed in the back, taunting Charlie as they're driving away, which I fucking yeah. love. <laughs> He's just in the back laughing. God, that's when I feel like Jeffries comes alive in the part yes. is when he becomes Evil mm -hmm. Ed. Like it's he just goes all in on the character. Um, Amy resembles a love lost of Jerry's, so he uses his charm to hypnotize her, and he eventually and eventually bites her on the neck. Now, Amanda Beers was required to remove her top for this scene, but she was uncomfortable being topless in front of a crew, yep. so she covered her breasts with duct tape. And then we see Charlie and Peter meet in front of Jerry's home before entering together with a visibly scared Peter who needed to remind himself that he's Peter Vincent, the great vampire killer, over and over upon entering. <laughs> And I love the foggy and windy aesthetic that the crew put forth in the creating whenever there's anything going on around Jerry's house in particular. Like, there's definitely a Dracula's Castle type of vibe going on that whenever we see it from the outside at night, and I love it so much. Like, the, the crew did a really good job of just giving off, like, that that aurora, you know? That, that feel of uh, just the whole... Victorian old crepit house like Jerry's well, something about Jerry's house is like the old Dracula's mansion haunted house type which is well obvious but not so obvious shout out to uh, production designer John DeCure Jr. who helped design sets for Ghostbusters and uh, Top Gun um, oh yeah and also one of the shout out Steve Johnson yep makeup effects artist Steve Johnson Former husband of Little Nick Quigley. Oh, that's right. Yes, because I was watching her doing commentary for Night of the Demons. And yes. uh, he's the one that put Linnea Quigley into the um, the bodysuit where she shoves a cigarette into her, her boobs. Mm hmm. Okay. Oh, wow. That's. Which is quite the way to start a relationship with someone, which is. Oh, I did not know he did. Well, I believe he... he I'm trying to think. Did he... Did he meet her on Return of the Living I, Dead? I met her on Return of the Living Dead, but I know he, they worked together on Nate of the Demons. And that's where they fell in love. Yeah, I know none of the, Okay, okay. Because I wasn't sure. Maybe it was Return of the Living Dead where he saw her at first and was like, I want to be with oh, that woman well, or well, something. After that... Because I remember him talking about her in a documentary... And, and I, I, I thought it was Return of the Living Dead, but it probably, yeah, you're, I, but you're right. She was on an episode of The Last Drive-In on Nate of the Demons, and she mentioned yes. how she met her, uh, I don't know if she met him on the set, but that's, they worked together, and then they dated after they worked together on Nate of the Demons when he put her into that sequence suit right there. But cool, I had no idea that he did special effects for this movie as well, so, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, this, Big Trouble in Little China... And he did a, um, he, he, he was one of many, many people that did um, effects work for Elm Street 4. He did the Levi Leviathan in 89. Oh, shit, um, yeah, okay. 
Pet Cemetery 2, which oh nice. Funny enough, Pet Cemetery 2, Scream Factory put that Blu-ray out uh, in a Clutches edition a few years ago, and one of the bonus features that they did, that they did specifically for that release was an interview of Steve Johnson. Okay, and th- I- that. I think that interview was where he talks about meeting Linnea or marrying her. Okay. And I want to say that's how, from that documentary. Oh. But I know he did the work for that, and then he did Return of the Living Dead Part 3, which I think is an underrated fucking movie. Okay, I, I, I've seen the part, Return of the Living Dead Part 1 so many times. I've never seen Part 2 and Part 3, but I'm going to this month, because I'm watching a whole bunch of horror Part 1 is my all-time, yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite horror movies, period. Yes. It actually is my all-time favorite horror movie. Um, part two is like... <laughs> Return of the Living Dead Part 2 is kind of like an unofficial sequel to Part 1. Or remake, I mean. Okay. Because um, you got Tom Matthews and James Frank back to... Uh, um, James Karen, sorry. They return in different roles, but they're kind of the same. They even the characters even say something in the film of one lines of like, "Doesn't this law seem uh, so familiar?" And oh, I'm no. like, "Okay, it's a little on the okay. nose here." So the dude like, but the- then part three breaks out and does its own thing, and I respect the hell okay, out of that so for doing its own thing. Tr- it's like a Romeo and Juliet with zombies. Return of the Living Dead Part Two is like Evil Dead Two, and they just <laughs> sort of, but not. As good as Evil Dead oh, okay. 2. Okay, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's good, but they're, they're trying to do the whole remade, maybe a little more campy, to be they got more of a budget so they can do more fetch, that type of thing. Alright. It's on my to be list, I will definitely watch it. Because, like, the documentary More Brains for Return of the Living Dead, yeah. once they get to part two, everyone that did part one did not come back for part two, and they all had nothing but horrible things to say about part two. Oh jeez. Oh, I, I, I think part two is still a fun movie. Sure. It's got some it's it's more of a straight up comedy than horror. Okay. Um I mean one of the zombies is a fucking Michael Jackson thriller zombie. You know? Okay. It's it's it, hey. it, it's it's really on the nose like that. Those zombie fests and wrong with that. thrillers are good stuff. Okay. Oh nothing wrong with that. No no no, no, no. but it you know it Check it out. Watch, see for yourself. Okay, you know? I'll give a shot there. Let you know. Right on. So, let's see where we are. We're here. at the house um, where Jerry and. Uh, oh, welcome to Fright Night for Real. Seriously, is there a better delivery to that line than the way Surrender pulls it off? I, that, I just, I, it's like my favorite line of the entire uh-huh. film, and the way Chris just pulls it off is just it's perfect. I, I always have, like, the perfect things to say about Serenity in this movie, and I mean it. I, I, I think he's ultimately the best thing going for this film. Uh, but Peter's crosses, they don't work because he doesn't have faith. Because he's got to have but faith. But now Charlie's cross definitely works. He's got to have faith. He's got to have faith, the faith, the faith. He's got to have faith, the faith, the faith. Get the fuck up! <laughs> uh, until Billy shows up to knock Charlie out. So yeah, Billy's back in the picture now, Billy Cole. He's like the the side boss now. So Peter flees to Charlie's house. He gets scared shitless and he's like running away. Goes next door and only to be greeted by Evil Ed. This is Brewster. Thank God the phone wires have been cut. I know. 
<laughs> I did it. Where is Charlie's mother? Oh, well, apparently she's working nights. But she left a note. Here's dinners in the oven. Before Evil Ed delivers that perfect line about Mrs. Brewster working nights and Charlie's dinner being in the oven, I was personally honestly questioning what the hell happened to Charlie's mother. She just dips out about a third of the way into the movie. Never to be seen again on camera. That's it. (laughs) Like, even after this third act, we don't see her anymore. She completely deuces out of this fucking film. That's like, that's one of my kind of like pet peeves of this movie. Like, Charlie's mom. What the fuck? I just, um, so did Ed kill it's her? It's weird. I, it's kind of weird. I thought the whole secret of that when Ed was talking about her, I just assumed that Ed killed her, but I don't know. No. No, okay. We got no confirmation of yeah, that. Yeah, I don't, I don't have confirmation. He's he's wearing a fucking wig, you know? It's it's it's, 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 it's like a ride, it's like a ride well, dog a lot wig. Of, like, people, I know like when I grew I remember my mom, my grandma, they had wigs even though they had full heads of hair. They always had weirds at their house. I'm just, I'm just saying, okay. dude. No, she just that's fair. Dips okay. out, like I said, yeah. you know, and like it's 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 one of them things. Like, what the hell happened? That's true. So okay, but I I will say though, I I, I like the the reveal of Ed being a werewolf instead of a vampire. Yes, great Griffiths there too for that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's different, and it gives off the impression that Jerry's capable of even more tricks than we think. Mm-hmm. It's also a really sad and horrifying sequence to watch. This is this is sad. This scene actually touches me because the way I don't know if it's the way Jeffries pulls it off, or if it's the effects work, or if it's everything. If, if it's both them together, but every time I watch this scene, it's just I I, I just get down because I'm like I feel sad for for Ed because it's just like he's just. He didn't deserve this, and he's just sitting there dying, and it's like, it's it's just, I don't know. I, the makeup for Ed's wolf transformation, it took 18 hours, okay? While he had the head wolf, the wolf head, the, can, the, the crew began pouring what they thought. It's a true story. Okay. He had the wolf head yeah. on. The crew began pouring what they thought was methylcellulose. I think I said that right into his mouth to create the illusion of saliva. Okay. But when Jeffries began to complain about the taste, Mark Brian Wilson realized that they had been using prosthetic adhesive. Oh, jeez. Which was gluing his mouth oh, shut. Oh, jeez. Talk about fucked. Yeah. Damn. So, yeah, that that, that was a no bueno. I'm, I'm surprised that... um. He didn't fucking sue. Jesus. Jeez. That's com- that's that's commitment to the craft right there too. They still want to go on with a yeah. feature after stuff like that happens. And people are like, oh actors, what are they complaining about this straight for? I don't get that, alright? There's yeah, no. <laughs> we hear stories like this, this is why. The effects crew attempted to achieve the illusion of the scar the, the cross scar 
vanishing from Evil Ed's forehead live on set, but the effect was a resounding failure in that pre-digital age, Richard Edlund's crew was able to alter the film using an optical photography to achieve the effect. That's what they did. Now, Evil Led doesn't disintegrate like Jerry and Billy do when they die, showing that he doesn't actually die, and that sets up the whole cliffhanger and all that. But I just wanted to, you know, just call attention to that, that he doesn't burn away and disintegrate. He's just dying as a human. It's very painful when you see him kind of go back into his human it is. form. It's very painful. And but then he pulls the stake out. Yeah. Ah. Uh, Which, you know, Peter pulling the wooden stake from Ed is seemingly the reason why the film's final scare happens and was going to be the real reason for Ed's return in Holland's proposed true sequel to the film. No disrespect to Tommy Lee Wallace. But... Yeah, Tom Holland is actually working on an actual sequel to this. Oh. Um, in, in book form. Oh, okay, okay, good, because I'm like, ah, oh, you can't really bring the movie back in the way it in, was. In book form. In book form, right, okay. Right, right. And the villain's going to be Evil Ed. So. Oh. All right, And okay. uh, the, uh, the shot of Jerry's house as soon as Peter exits Charlie's home is so gloomy yet gorgeous with the white fog falling down from every ledge and the way that the shot's angled and how the place is lit up. It's 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 perfect. It's like the ultimate haunted house. It's I love that eerie feeling. Sadly um, enough, the cinematographer of this, uh, Jan Klesler, didn't really do much after this feature. Uh, the only thing that they've done is they did work on the movie Fido, um, before that, they worked in the grip department in Weird Science. Um, but for cinematographer, they did a lot of TV, TV work, um, a lot of like directed video stuff, but really did not do much in terms of cinematography work. The only horror movie I see on here is Fido um, from the 2000s. No, no, they, they, they didn't. Um, oh, they did. Yeah. And, that, and that's actually, you know. Because we, we talk about that in the cast and crew, and that's usually oh, no, the case. That it's, 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 not, it's, it's not common, but it's not uncommon. I take the back. They, that this I do see this other... Some great cinematographers. They, yeah, they, they worked on some kind of wonderful, and uh, Vera Wachowski, um But after that... Well, I, know, I, I, I noticed the, 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 the Michael Keaton film, Clean and Sober. See, I haven't seen that one, so okay. Oh, okay. Um, not a bad movie, but that's usually the case. Like a lot of the, I, I will tend, I'll, you know, I'll I'll see like a, a film that's I think looks fantastic, was shot gorgeously. Look at the cinematographer, look at the DP, whatever you have, and their history, and it's like two movies and. 30 seasons of all these TV Get more shows. Girls like, and, what gives? Yeah, okay. You know, uh, it's it's it, kind of common, unfortunately. Well, I say that too because, I mean, there are some really great iconic shots that hark us back to both the, the Universal Monsters movies as well as Hammer Horror Pictures. And yeah. you would think that this person would go on to shoot more horror films. But that's not the case. And... That's I just found that to be just kind of fascinating. I, I looked it up cast and crew of movies that I watched. So, all right, fair enough. 
So Jerry leaves Charlie alone with attorney Amy in a locked room with a stake. Don't be frightened, Charlie. Hurry, Peter, get it open. He's locked it from the inside. What's wrong? Don't you want me anymore? Peter arrives and breaks down the door, freeing Charlie so they can finish what they started. And Charlie and Amy, I mean, I'm sorry, Peter and Charlie versus Billy on the staircase is what's next. Featuring numerous gunshots and a final stake to the heart, which sets off a makeup effects extravaganza. Tom Holland has said before that this scene with Billy creeping up on the staircase behind Peter and Charlie is inspired by Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Stark was supposed to be wearing a pair of contacts, vampire contacts, when he came up the staircase, but the actor was blinded by the lenses and kept tripping on the stairs. So the director told him to remove one. More on those lenses coming up. And that's why he's only got the one, and it looks like, you know, when he... This shit happens with his eyes, that's why... It it looks kind of weird. He's only wearing one of the uh, contacts, not the other. Um, And Stark was covered in green and red gore, after he shot this scene, oh, this is a funny story he tells. So he asked to take a shower and was told that there was no that there was plumbing a uh, plumbing problem in the building. So he had to go home. And on his way home, he realized he was about to run out of gas. So he pulled into a full service gas station and he said, "Some guy comes up and when I looked at me, he turned white." Stark said at a reunion, "He gave me the he gave me the gas." But when I left, I saw him on the phone, and I'm sure he was calling the cops. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. There's another story about someone who was going home, and they were on set with, like, all this blood and macabre over their body, and they were going to get gas or get something to eat, and something similar happened. I can't remember oh, which movie it was. But I can only imagine, like, just having to go home, wearing all this fucking gore all over you, and then having to stop somewhere and forgetting... That that's still on you, and then, you, you know, like having to be like, oh no, I'm in the industry, you know, I'm just coming from a set. This is, you know, it's all this is all fake, you know. This that but a lot too. The the uh, cast members from the original Dawn of the Dead, because they shot that movie into wee hours in the morning, and a lot of yeah. the extra zombies just went to their regular coffee shop to get breakfast, not knowing that the they had the makeup on, and scaring people <laughs> there. So, and it happens, you know, you work for a long hour shift. You're tired. Yeah. You definitely want to go home and shower, but you want to eat something. You're like, well, I'm going to stop and get some coffee. He's like, oh, it's true. That's right. I've still got work for on. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, it, it happens. Oh. It happens, you know. But this scene with, with um, Billy creeping up on them and then finally getting his comeuppance and dying, it's... Um, it's a fun scene to watch, you know. It really is. Because it's, it's kind of like, all right, Go ahead, you know that you you know they're gonna have the big battle with the like with with the the side boss first. Yeah. So when you see him kind of creeping up on them, it's like all right, this is where it's gonna happen, and then it does happen. It plays out, and then Jerry's response to Billy's death, it's 
it, and this is also the same scene when Peter kind of like gains his faith back and this is when Jerry just becomes unhinged and you know we start seeing him turn more and more into his you know creature form throughout the movie throughout the rest of the movie rather and what he does at this part is he wakes Amy up telepathically from the rooftop he's up on the roof like calling for and shit and he's got that makeup and shit it's a wild scene now let's talk about these contact lenses the custom contact lenses were hard plastic handmade and hard and hand painted and excruciating for cast members Stephen Jeffries was temporarily blinded and suffered severe scratches while Amanda Beers found herself so uncomfortable with her second pair that they had to stop shooting to have them sanded down because Steve Johnson initially forgot to sand them. Oh. And, ooh, yeah, no. Now, back then, these contacts were not like today because back then they were, like, thick. They were, like, like, a couple millimeters thick. So it was like wearing hard glass plates over your eyes. So you couldn't keep them in there for a long time to begin with. And when you did have them on, they were painted by hand, like I said, with paint. So you couldn't see through them. So you were pretty much blinded by the, you know. Aren't aren't these the same tape of uh, contact lenses that they used in The Evil Dead? Yep. That tape of painful. Yeah, I remember watching documentaries well, what, about that. Yeah. yeah, same stories, same horror okay. stories, and you're pretty much going to hear the same stories throughout the entire decade from horror films because that's what they resorted to. And as far as uh, contacts back then, they didn't have the um, they didn't have it figured out the way they do today and the way they do them. You know, well, today they'll just do it digitally. But, you know, but, but after the 80s, they, they, they actually got it down to, like, actual contacts, you know, with just different designs. And, and they, they weren't glass they, and like they were back in the 80s. Back in the day, they used old school Trek techniques and they had to sand them down and all. Well, unless you're Steve Johnson, you forgot to <laughs> in this case. But yeah, I mean, the Burst Beers was in such pain that they actually had to stop shooting for a little while while she had them taken out. And like I said, they had to get sanded because they were forgot. You know, Steve Johnson, you mean a boo-boo. You forgot. So, and Jerry, he's continuing to transform more and more. And now it's Jerry versus Peter and Charlie. And a puppet was created for the ghost librarian's monstrous visage in Ghostbusters that was rejected as being too terrifying for a PG movie. It was the, um, I can't remember what the hell it was. But when the FX crew subsequently went to work on this film, they realized that the rejected model resembled the vampire bat that they'd be, that they created. So basically the vampire bat that Jerry is in this movie, that it was, that was uh, a, Rejected creature from Ghostbusters. So that was what the librarian was going to turn into, was that? Yes. Wow. Because yes. I remember, okay, what they had in Ghostbusters scared the shit out of me when I was that age. I cannot imagine how traumatized I would have been if they used the effect they had. Which is so weird because I watched it in the context of this movie, and it's good. I would love to see it in the context of Ghostbusters because... Ghostbusters did scare me, 
and I would like to see that creature effect used in Ghostbusters, but I think it works great in Fright Night. I wish they used both... I wish it was used in both movies, is what I'm trying to say. I would love that. Because if I saw it in Ghostbusters, I would be scared, but I would get used to the scare, and it would help me to just do it. And if I saw Fright Night, if I saw it again there, I would be saying, hey, look, Ghostbusters, call back. All right, and then I would have felt easier watching it. But I felt more easier watching Fright Night than I did Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters as a kid legitimately scared me. Fright Night watched it, and elements that did scare me, uh, mainly because it was the tension and the suspense for it. And, yeah. So Ghostbusters and Fright Night, same timeline confirmed. Yes, they're both the same um, element there. Same here right now, okay? Tom Holland... Uh, if Ivan Reitman wasn't dead, he can confirm that too, but... <laughs> now, real quick, Steve Johnson, the 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 one effect, the one ghost that he did in Ghostbusters that they liked so much that he got the job for this film was the cab driver uh, ghost. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. That was... That was, that was, that was what Steve Johnson created okay. from scratch. And they liked that one so much that that's what got him the job for Fright Night. Was that that particular zombie or, or ghost okay. from Ghostbusters? Um, while fending off the the Jerry bat with uh, a bone during the climax, Roddy McDowell accidentally cracked the puppet's skull. The crew scrambled to fix the bat so that they could, you know, finish shooting. But such extensive damage occurred that it took two days to properly reassemble, so they had to temporarily delay further uh, filming further close-up shots of the creature. Um, and then the final encounter in Jerry's basement, Peter breaks open Jerry's coffin and tries to stake him through the, the heart while, Char- bleh, while Charlie fights off Amy, who has almost completed her transformation. By breaking the blacked-out windows in the basement... Peter and Charlie expose Jerry to the sunlight, destroying him and returning Amy to her human form.
While blocking a scare scene, Tom Holland asked visual effects Randall William Cook if he could devise a shark mouth for one of the vampires. There was neither time nor money left in the budget to create an elaborate prosthetic, but Cook agreed to concoct a rig over a weekend with the proviso that it would only be seen on screen for a few seconds. Ultimately, the crudely made mouthpiece was not only featured extensively in the film, it was also utilized in the movie's famous art poster art. Oh, yes. So, yeah, that's... that's, oh, that's the, um, okay. That's where that comes from. Yeah. Oh, nice. So... This mouth that Amanda Beers had to wear, apparently it was painful for her. Very painful. She couldn't breathe. And so she got these contacts she, and these mouth things here. Wow. She really was put through the ringer in this fucking movie. Uh, the contacts, oh, yes. Geez. And then this mouthpiece that she had to wear and she couldn't take off. And it... it she was visibly crying, like she had tears, and it, it, um, I think it was Steve, or it might have been someone else, but they actually, like, went over Tom Holland's head, went over, and ripped the mask off so she could breathe, and it, it, it that's, that's why the, the, um, the mouthpiece is only featured you know, so predominant. It's it's not it's 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 kinda like not it's not the center f I don't know how to describe it. It's 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 not really uh front and center um because it I don't know. Yeah. I I'm losing my way no, of words right now no, with this but, scene yeah, here. I, I I know what you're trying to say Ed um I'm losing my words there too I just imagine that whatever kind of stress that actors have to wear, the agents have to do a lot of difficult work and to make yeah. it seem painless. What's the some trust here? What Amanda Beers had to do to make it not seem that she was in pain is very commendable and very I'm just in awe of like the stuff that a lot of actors do, I don't think I could do. Or even would want to do. Um, yeah. I mean, she did as much as she could yeah. until she couldn't. And it works know, great. And that's when someone, saw, someone on set pointed it out and ran over to a rescue and just ripped They're it off her face. Just being safe. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it, so. they got enough of the footage that they need that it works yeah, fine. exactly. So we know at yeah. this point there, too, that... She's starting to turn, and she's going to become fully turned to vampire unless uh, Charlie and Peter Vincent can save her. I can't say Peter. I gotta say Peter Vincent. I don't. No, yeah. So I got gotcha. you. They died. And you know, it's it's it's, it's just kind of goofy, over the top, and the effect. It's, it wasn't fully what Tom Holland was asking for, and then. At the end of the day, it ended up being front and center on the fucking poster. That's just that just blows my mind, <laughs> and it blows Tom Holland's mind too. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's that. It pretty much, film ends, saves the day. A few nights later, we see that Peter has somehow returned to his TV show Fright Night, where he announces a hiatus from vampires, 
presenting a film about Martians and aliens instead. Charlie and Amy watch the program as they become romantic in bed, but when Charlie gets up to turn off the TV, that's when we see a quick flash of red eyes coming from next door, with the movie ending on Evil Ed's voice saying once again that you're so cool, Brewster, before breaking into his horrific laughter as the credits begin to roll. Fright night, fright night. Ooh, who's it gonna be tonight? Ooh, written and directed by the J. Dow's band, and I remember having the 45. I bet you did. Of that song, <laughs> and playing it a bunch of times, because I remember J. Dow's band did, like, Freeze Frame. Uh, freeze Frame. Yeah, freeze frame. yeah. Uh, and they had another big song that I can't think of, but I just remember both Fright Night and Freeze Frame being my favorite songs, and... After this movie, when you first saw this movie, Ed, I just always thought that they would turn Fright Night into a TV series. Mm, okay. Like, they would, it would just be the same thing. Ed is still a vampire, but Charlie, even though he knows Ed's a vampire, it still is his best friend. He's trying to keep watch of him, just to make sure that he doesn't devour any of his friends trying to keep the town safe and he teams up with Peter Vincent and it would become very much like how Buffy the Vampire Slayer was just each week they both hunt they both hunt a different creature and sooner or later they do convince Ed to be a good vampire very much like Angel is was the show and uh, th- yeah. there would be elements where he does do good but he's still kind of torn between being good or bad and then the first season would all be about Jerry's sister. I think that's what they would do nowadays. They would just turn this into a TV show. Um, I want to ask you, uh, we did talk about Fright Night Part 2 a little bit. Uh, what did you mm-hmm. think of the remake, the 2011 remake with um, Colin Farrell and Anton Yelchin? I, I don't mind it. I, I kind of like it, but I, I think it's I don't compare the two. That's fair. Um I, I I like how they incorporate the relationship between Charlie and his mother a little bit better in the remake because Tony Colletti is actually in the film towards the end. Yeah. She doesn't disappear. Um, I like that. I, I like how it had the balls to to, to remake. I, I like how they had the balls to remake Fright Night, period. And it, and it came out... Through Disney of all fucking people, <laughs> Disney put that remake out. Okay, Touchstone, yeah. which is under the Disney label, put out Fright Night in 2011 in 3D of all things. Um, no, I I, I like the, the the callbacks. Love Chris Rendon's cameo as a character named JD. Okay, funny. Oh, and I I, I love anything Anton Yelchin's in. I miss him. Oh. I thought he was one of the. I, as as an up and coming talent, I thought he was the best of the best. And can't um, argue with that. He's an amazing actor. Um, just did not like his character so much. Here, I thought his character was kind of an asshole a lot of the times. Yeah. And it, it, they do switch things around because I believe but it so is. Uh, I feel Charlie in this film is kind of an asshole too. Yeah, I think he's a little bit more likable than Anton Gelchin's character. A little bit more likable. Like he, he feels like he would believe yeah. people more. Because I think in this, in the remake, uh, Christopher Mintz Platts plays the Evil Ed character. Yeah, I don't. I do not like Evil Ed in the remake. Okay. Oh. I don't. I like the. Let me 
scratch that. I love the fact that they set the story in Vegas. And they're in this neighborhood in the middle of the desert that's just so different that you don't see traditionally in horror films, especially remakes. It's, it's, it, they take it out of California and they set it in Vegas. That's different. I like that. Uh, Peter Vincent. Uh, Peter Vincent in, in, in the remake. David Tennant. Uh, huh? David Tennant, yeah. David Tennant, yeah, Doctor Who. Um, while I do like David Tennant, I think his Peter Vincent is kind of one tone compared to Ronnie McDowell. He's not Ronnie McDowell. Um, he's more of like a he's he is the Russell Brandt version of Peter Vincent. Oh, sh- in the remake. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Um, I don't know. Not for me. Even though I do like the actor who portrays him, it's just not really my thing. Um, and the whole thing that he's a magician and does a Vegas show instead of... Yeah, I, I just don't like what they did with Peter Vincent in, in That's the fair. That's fair. But I, I, I like Charlie. I like Jerry. I like the relationship with Charlie and his mother. Um, I don't know. It depends on what kind of mood I'm in when I'm watching it. I'm, I'm usually on the fence with Imogene Poots. Um, as a love interest, um, I love the Chris Rendon cameo. I think it's cool as shit. I would give another and shot like, because I just only watched it in theaters and really haven't seen it since then. And I put the the original Fright Night on such a high pedestal that when I watched it, uh, then I watched it with my arms crossed. Going, Why you dare you remake this movie? Oh yeah, when I first saw it in the theaters, I hated it. When I first saw this movie in 2011, I went by myself and I saw it in 3D. And I, my, I think I posted on my Facebook account why, <laughs> like something along them lines. Okay. Like I did not like it, and then I, you know, I came down off my my fucking pedestal a little bit when it came out on Blu-ray later on that yeah. year, and I gave it a rewatch, and I enjoyed it more. And I watched it over, not over and over and over like sure. that, but like I saw it a few more times over the next couple of years, and yeah. It, Nothing wrong with it. There was no re- there was no need for me to fucking go off the way I did when I first saw it because it's not really a bad movie. Sure. All right. So that's that's my thoughts on the remake. Now this film, real quick before we get into our categories, uh, the original ending. Would you like to hear about it, or do you already know about I, it? Sure. Yes. Charlie and Amy are in bed, finally consummating their relationship when. Suddenly on the television, Fright Night comes on, and Peter Vincent declares, Tonight's creepy crawler is Dracula Strikes Again. Obviously about vampires. You know uh, you know what vampires look like, don't you? They look like this. And Charlie and Amy are horrified as Peter begins to transform. Once this transformation into his vampire hood takes place, Peter stares into the camera saying, Hello, Charlie. And the picture, then the picture freeze frames, and the credits roll. According to actor William Ragsdale, it didn't feel right having the vampire winning. It's not something people were looking for in the 80s. The head of Columbia then called Holland and gave him grief over turning one of their heroes into a monster. That's when he came up with the idea of Vincent's wink, followed by the quick flash of Evil Ed's red eyes, followed by the iconic You're So Cool Brewster. Boom. Damn. I, I like that, I, I like that, but I think the ending that they used in the movie with Evil Ed was good, mm-hmm. but being the fact that they did sort of change the end around anyways, maybe 
the other ending would have worked better. Who knows? All right, let's talk a little bit more about the film in the form of Trivial Pursuit. It's funny. Little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. One of the life masks of Roddy McDowell taken from the Planet of the Apes franchise is visible in Peter Vincent's apartment. Charlie's 1966 Ford Mustang actually belonged to writer-director Tom Holland. The car was totaled in an accident a decade later. Frustrated that they'd never been asked to do DVD extras before, all of the principal cast members, except for Amanda Bierce, who was unable at the time, recorded two pirate commentaries which were released as free MP3s on the Icons of Fright website in 2008. Due to a contractual stipulation of Sony, distributor Twilight Time was unable to produce original content for the 30th anniversary edition Blu-ray release in 2015, so they included both commentaries as well as other pre-existing bonus materials. Much of the film's $9.5 million budget was spent on special effects, as it was the first vampire film to spend a million dollars on special effects overall. The final shot that Jonathan Stark filmed was the introduction of his character, Paint in the Window. Jonathan Stark auditioned with the scene that he's being questioned by the detective. The scene was written to be played straight, but Stark decided to play comically, which won him the role. Look, the bag I saw had a body in it, not trash. You, uh actually see the body, Charlie? Well, no, but... Okay. Look, uh, let me take you out back. I'll show you the bags they're putting in the garbage. Okay, let's see them. Look, I can prove he's lying. Let's look in the basement instead. What's down there, Charlie? Yes, Charlie. What's down there? Well, obviously the boys made a mistake, obviously. not kidding. A coffin! That's what's down there, a coffin. I saw them carry it in. What? Yeah, and you'll find Jerry Dandridge in it, sleeping the sleep of the undead. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what, have, what are you talking about? He's a vampire. Uh-oh. <laughs> I saw him in that room last night, and he had fangs, and he bit her on the neck. For heaven's sake, come on. What, what are you talking about? Wait. Look, we can't just leave like coffin. this. I got a coffin for you. You don't know Lieutenant, please, please listen to me. Look, 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 I'm telling you, Jerry Dandridge is a vampire. Sure, and I'm dirty hearing. Now, let me tell you something, kid. If I ever catch your ass down at the station house again, I'm throwing it in jail forever. During the scene where Amy and Evil Led arrive at Charlie's house and find his room adorned with crosses and candles, Stephen Jeffries actually suffered from a bad case of food poisoning. You could say Evil Led is the gay kid who was bullied, director Tom Holland told Dread Central, but I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking he's the kid who reads all of those EC comic books. He commented on the implied gay relationship between Jerry and Billy, the stuff with Chris Randon and Jonathan Stark, that's me. When Jerry lifts Charlie by the throat and carries him across the room, the actor was actually being pulled by a, by a furniture dolly. Jerry wears a large trench coat, serving as a modern update of a vampire's cape. Cape. Hottie Sorensen, who plays the hooker that Charlie sees going to Jerry's house, was Playboy Playmate of the Month in July 1981. The film pays numerous tributes to Salem's Lot, which is at, such as the house with the large staircase and window backdrop, the basement finale at dawn, 
the older man, younger boy, vampire hunters, and the human guardian and his final demise on the stairs. The head vampire in Fright Night is also similar to the Barlow character in the novel by Stephen King, which was drastically altered in the teleplay. And finally, Chris Sarandon famously makes his cameo appearance in the 2011 remake of Fright Night. His character's name was J.D., an apparent homage to Jerry Dandridge, the original vampire. Fright Night represents the return of the vampire film in modern clothes. As one of the characters asked during the film, aren't you tired of seeing only axe murderers wearing ski masks chop up young women in the movies these days? He's got a point there, and it is a funny line, and for a while, Fright Night has a lot of funny lines. Telling the story of a young man discovering, even though no one will believe him, of course, that a vampire has moved into the house next door. That's why he visits the host of the local TV horror film show played by Roddy McDowell, because this kid needs and really wants help. What you want me to sign? Pardon me? Well, you do want my autograph, don't you? No. No, sir, I was curious about what you said last night on TV, you know, right? about believing in vampires. What about it? Were you serious? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, none of your generation seems to be. What do you mean? I have just been fired because nobody wants to see vampire killers anymore, or vampires either. Apparently, all they want are demented madmen running around in ski masks, hacking up young virgins. Now, if you would excuse me. I believe in vampires. That's nice. If only there had been a few more of you, perhaps my ratings would have been higher. In fact, I have one living next door to me. Would you help me kill him? That part of the story is kind of fun with Roddy McDowell. Less appealing is the horror material. For example, when one of that kid's friends, who doubts that vampires exist, learns otherwise in an alley. Hello, Edward. <laughs> You don't have to be afraid of me. I know what it's like being different. Only they won't pick on you anymore. Or beat you up. I'll see that I... All you have to do is take my hand. Here, Edward. Take my hand. Now, that kid there was Stephen Jeffries. He's the guy that Roger and I are always saying look exactly like a young Jack Nicholson. If Nicholson's ever looking for somebody to play his son, <laughs> that's the guy who gets the job. You bet. Now, those long nails we saw at the end of the picture actually, I thought, proved to be the undoing of Fright Night because the often witty and funny movie in the beginning sadly turns at the end into a ghoulie special effect show full of disintegrating bodies, rotting corpses, and the sickest of all, a dying dog that crawls around with a stake through its heart. A lot of special effects in this film that are all too familiar or just plain gross. So, a reluctant thumbs down from me on Fright Night because it is simply too gross at the end after a very funny beginning. Well, it's a close call for me, but I do give it a thumbs up because I did think it was funny. And also, you're objecting to rotting corpses and disintegrating bodies in a vampire movie? What do you expect they're going to find in that coffin? Not to the degree, Roger. In other words, we've, no, seen, other, we've, seen, other, we've seen other vampire films... Mm -hmm. uh, from, from uh, Christopher Lee, Lee Peter Cushing, where Hammerfell. one thing disintegrates and it's a big moment, and we see it all oh, turn to the same. This is you're ignoring, you're ignoring, you're ignoring the paradox 
of rising expectations in special effects films. This is 1985. You can't have Vincent Price putting one stake through one heart anymore. You got to have all this. I settle for two, and not two hundred. Also, not partially, it's satirical. For example, yeah. when the when the, the dog vampire, is satirical. When the was that satirical when the dog is running around? That that wasn't satirical. That is that was gross. So let it be gross. I mean, you're looking at a vampire movie and you're saying it's in bad taste. It's supposed to be in no, bad Raj, taste. There, That's the whole point. No, there have been other vampire films that have been quite stylish. Nosferatu. Even The Howling I liked, which was on the border of gross. I'm just saying it's okay, too gross. Okay, well, this movie has nothing at all to do with Nosferatu or The Howling. It has a lot to do with The Howling. The fact that Roddy McDowell is a tip-off, it's a Saturday afternoon. That stuff is fun. I said it too. Vampire movie that's having fun with itself. And at that level, I give it a thumbs up. All right, well... Here's what we thought about the film in the form of pros and cons. Robin, get me my legal pad. It's pros and cons time. <laughs> All right, kicking off with the pros as always. I'm going to go down my list, then you can do yours. Okay. Uh, the makeup effects from Richard, Eklund, uh, Richard Edlund and Steve Johnson are beautifully disgusting. I'll always have a heart for Brad Fidel's score for this. The performances and stage-like feel of this movie has really helps it stand out for all the other uh, helps it stand out from all the other vampire films from this decade. Um, the legacy this movie still has, nearly forty years later, is incredible and somewhat inspiring. And I know I already mentioned this. I I, I know I already mentioned the performances, but Chris Sarandon alone is worth singling out due to his on-screen presence. Again, it's hard to envision anyone else playing this character other than Sarandon. Sorry, Colin Farrell. It's, That's fair. It's 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 his show. Um, so yeah, the combination of the uh, the effects work, the music, um, the 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 stage like feel, and the um, performance from Sarandon are my biggest pros for this movie. How about you? I think for me, uh, my biggest pros of this one has to be the set design. I think that's just brilliantly done work. Um, yeah. I, I, I do like, and I just want to give a shout out to um, the editor, and I have a hard time pronouncing this name. Oh, yeah. Kent Baida. Oh, Baida. Baida, because... Kent Baida. Kent Baida. This, the editor of this works just so quick. I love the, how this movie is paced. It's paced perfect. Just really well. Uh, yeah. I should have mentioned that on my pros too. The pacing's great. There's no slow moments in this. Uh, the cast is all very well done. Uh, mm -hmm. William Ransdale, Chris Randall. R William Ransdale went on to do Herman's Head and that's the only thing I really <laughs> recognize William Ransdale from. But every cast member here has great rapport and chemistry with each other. Uh, Rodney McDowell. Oh, you never seen Mannequin too? I have not seen Mannequin 2. I've seen... Mannequin 2 on the move with Christy Swanson have, and William Ragsdale. I have seen Mannequin Replacing one. Andrew McCarthy. Okay, I will... I have not seen Mannequin 2 because I, <laughs> I'm scared that they don't have the same actors again for the sequel. And I just haven't seen it. I should because I like Christy Swanson's early movies like Deadly Friend um, and Buffy the Vampire. And the, the, the villain is played by Terry Kaiser. Bernie. Bernie. From Weekend of Bernie's. Oh, fun. Okay, okay I, I, I might give that one a shot. But yeah, uh, everyone, Stephen Jeffries, like, you see Stephen Jeffries, Amanda Beers, and William Ridstall together. They could be the leads in a teen drama, and I would watch it, even though there's no vampires involved. They are actually a lot of fun to see. So, yeah, I would say the cast, uh, the editing, and direction by Tom Holland. 
um, did a very good job with this. Uh, believe I'm not sure. I know that he directed. Um, oh, he didn't direct. He wrote Sacral Two, and I think this was his mm-hmm. first directing effort. It, yeah, it was. Was this movie here and pulling just off the bat, just just pulling it all of the park right there too. Just he just went into this and made a big budget movie so yeah good on you tom holland so the dretchen the editing and the cast are my pros have you ever seen class of 84 i have seen that yes i have because he wrote that also he did oh shit okay great film okay great film teacher teacher about the teacher that fights back against the of kids that yeah, but the, the the punks and it's got a very young Michael J. Fox. So that's right. Good film. Oh damn. Um, all right. What's your cons? cons. What's your cons? That's right. I got one. I I, okay. I wrote one down. This movie has an issue of secondary characters outside of the core cast. Characters like Charlie's mom and Detective Lennox just show up and then simply exit stage left without any indication that they'll be back for the last of. You know anything in this movie? It'll be the last we'll see them in. It's it, no indication of that at all. It, they just they say hi and then goodbye and that's it. I mean, Lennox only has one scene and that's all. He shows up to be the he's the cop that comes in. Art Evans who plays uh, Lennox he comes in, and then that's when uh, Billy and him kind of have a laugh at Charlie's expense and that's it. He doesn't come back, doesn't follow up on that case or nothing. He just disappears, just like Charlie's mom. That's my problem with this movie is the secondary characters just disappear. That's it. Not a lot of them, but the ones we do get, they're just high and goodbye. That's a good, that is a very good con. That Your con is like even way better than mine because I had a hard time trying to think of things I do not like about this movie. And it's, it's really difficult because I, it's a movie that I can just pop on really anytime and try to yeah, enjoy it. It's like I, a comfort I, food. I, I just like con that people should say about this movie is that it's too 80s, but that's not really con. That's one of my biggest pet peeves when people be like, oh, th- this movie is 80s or, you know, it's too this year. I'm like, yes, I know because that's the year. It's like, yes, it came out in 85. It came exactly. out in there. Mid-80s. Uh, I'll say this right now. My, my, my con about this movie is that there's not enough Heidi Sorensen who played the hooker in this movie. There's... <laughs> There's been more of her in this. I'll allow it. Right. I like that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Nothing like that. Other than that, I think it's a solid movie. If you do you want to get into stores now, or oh, next is a uh, Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Uh, the one thing I would change from Mulligan moment for me is the final encounter. You could use an additional five to ten minutes to give off. Uh, really a sense of danger for the protagonist. There's not a real sense of danger in the, in the, the end product. It's the, the final the final battle happens and it's like the fight occurs. It, it, you've got Roddy fighting a, a mechanic head with a bone and you've got Charlie dicking around with Amy with the, the shark mouth and it it just it's kind of I don't want to say it's anticlimactic. It's not that. I just felt like it could have used five to ten more minutes of like more of a threat, you know. Um, 
other than that, I wouldn't change anything about any. I wouldn't change anything about this movie if it, just other than that. Um, I I th- I spent all that. Out. The only thing I would change, not so much change, but I wish that there was a little more threat with Amanda Beers's character turned to a vampire when she's in that room um, with uh, Charlie. I wish there was some more like danger involved in that. Right. But that's about it. Yeah. There you go. All right, well, then let's move on to our finger-looking-good moments, our favorite parts of the film. Finger-looking-good. For me, it's the late club scene, slightly edging out the stand at Jerry's house. It's almost a tie between the two with the scare, uh, the scare with the scene at the, the club radio just narrowly getting the win here. I just, for reasons that we talked about during the, the breakdown, um, the, the, the fucking... The, the seductive dance off between Jerry and Amy. I love the music that's playing. I, I love the whole nightclub aesthetic. It kind of this particular club that's in this film, this club radio. It it kind of reminds me of the industrial club in The Terminator. Speaking of that movie again. Oh, nice. Brad Fidel throwing that one. Brad well, Fidel, yeah. exactly. Um, and it, it kind of reminds me of that. Always has, always will. Um, but like I said, that, that entire sequence just narrowly edges out the finale in Jerry's home. Um, not by much, but narrowly. So that's my favorite scene. How about you? Oh gosh. All right. Well, I do like the sequence when Jerry has his mom locked in the room and they're having that one one off moment. That is, that that is a good moments. scene. That's a really good scene. I forgot about in, in that. In the bedroom. That's actually really cool because you see the danger that Jerry is. And then I think the other sequence that I like is when Jerry is turning Ed into a vampire just because it totally changes the tropes around of what a horror suspense sequence is. And I like very much that it screws the tropes on that and it becomes like a scene of understanding and then becomes a scene of horror and violence. Yeah. Alright. Let's now list off our movie MVPs. Alright, now you might think I'm a little biased but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is I think mine's a no-brainer. You, Chris okay. Sarandon. Uh, you to the words of my mouth, Ed. Chris, we up. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, we've already talked about why because it's, it's it's Chris Sarandon and he just em- embellishes this role, this character, like he is Jerry Dandridge. I'm sorry, it's just no one else could do it. So well, for that reason alone, he's the MVP of this movie. You know. See, for me, my MVP is got to be Roger McDowell as Peter Vincent. Because okay. you mentioned about iconic characters that, yeah, like um, Chris Randon's role as Jerry Dandridge is very iconic. But the same thing, too, could be said about um, Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent. And yes, he's been known for many movies, but when I think about Roddy McDowell, I'm going to think mostly about him as Peter Vincent. Yeah. Okay. For me, that's... Respect the hell out of that. I love it. All right. It's time for our final effect ratings. Mm. How would you rate this one, Miles? Double feature pairings. Yeah, we made a great pair. All right, for me, I'm giving this four stars, pairing it up with Salem's Lot. Another Ooh. vampire film from around the same era that this film clearly inspired Fright Night to begin with. Mainly, um, 
I don't know, they might as well run alongside the source itself. So you can't listen to everything I said throughout this episode and seriously expect anything less than a favorable four-star final rating for me. Everything from the look and the feel, the visuals, to the performances of the characters, to the overall writing and respect it has for vampire lore in general, all of that alone is reason enough to warrant such a high rating for me. And the fact that this is actually a film that went up a notch on my list of favorite 80s films from the va- from uh, vampires in general, that's another reason why I feel so highly about this movie. So out of five... I'm giving it four stars, pairing it up with Salem's Lot. Oh, that's a good one here. Okay, well, uh, out of five, I'm going to go with four and a half. And the movie that I'm going to pair it up with, it's a little bit different. doesn't have so much the comedic feel to it, but it's a movie that I just watched last night. Uh, I, haven't seen this, I haven't seen this movie in a while, uh, but I'm going to do Let the Right One In. Love it. The uh, 2007 Swedish movie about a uh, little boy who discovers his next-door neighbor is a vampire, and the two form a friendship with each other. And when you watch uh, Jerry's relationship with the caretaker, just imagine uh, Jerry being younger girl and whatnot, and the story about him and his caretaker. Yeah, very sweet movie uh, with some gorgeous cinematography. The music is great. That swimming pool sequence. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, and I, even the remake is not bad. There's some really great sequences. The remake, remake. literally knocks that scene off. Like, literally oh, knocks that scene off I hate, shot for shot. I hate they did that, but there's a sequence when the guy who is the familiar for the girl vampire, he tries to kill someone. Yeah, Richard, um, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins, yeah, thank you. He goes into her car, he's trying to escape, and everything's done from the POV back to the car. There's a shot that goes on with that, the car flipping over, that I thought was absolutely brilliant. And there's some other great moments in that that are great. Mm. I've read the book, and I've seen both movies, and both movies take elements from the book, and they use it very well. Like, the American remake... Uh, has more of the cop investigating the movie a little more yeah. than the Swedish version. But the Swedish version has that group of um, people that meet at the bar each time, the lady and the guy and the friends. Those people, those bar people, they have more of that in the Swedish version. So I think both movies complement the book very well. Yeah, because, um, um, what is it? Um, Elias Coteus. Casey Jones. Yes, yes. Let's, yes. He's the he's the cop yep. in the remake, and that's not even that, that character's not even in the, the, the original. He's not. Right? No, but he's in the book. I think so. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well. So yeah, four point five yeah. right night, and then to print up with uh, let the right one in. Love it. All right, cool. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time for this episode on Fright Night, a film that 100% undoubtedly gets our film effects seal of approval. One down, many more to follow. If this was your first time listening to the show, then hopefully you enjoyed what you heard and plan on returning. Let us know what you thought about what you heard by leaving us a quick rating or a small review. Apple, Spotify, Facebook. Leave us an email, filmeffectpod at gmail.com or wherever else you listen that allows you 
to leave such wonderful things. Make sure you're on the up and up by following us on the socials at Film Effect Pod on Twitter, Film Effect Podcast everywhere else. And before we get out of here, I want to thank my good friend Vern from his podcast, Cinema Recall. Why don't you go on and plug away now, my friend? Well, thank you very much, Ed. I had a great time being on the show. Uh, please check out our past episodes of Cinema Recall. We're available on all your favorite podcast platforms. I apologize. We are in a little bit of a hiatus until my co-host comes back. So uh, not any new episodes right now at the moment, but we got other great shows for you to hear and listen to. I'm right now working on a Clue audio drama. I'm doing that for Rabbit Hole Podcast. We're doing a whole new audio drama adaptation of Clue. Um, so that's going to be happening soon for Rabbit Hole Podcast. Uh, I know for our show, we've done adaptations of Nate of the Living Dead and Plan 9 from Our Space. You can find those on your search platforms. So check those out. But that's one of my main projects right now is taking Clue and making a whole new audio drama adaptation of that. And I will have all the links in the episode notes as well to Vern's podcast and Marie Call, so you can check it out directly there. And that's that for this episode. Until next time, I'm Ed. I'm Vern. And this has been another episode of the Film Effect Podcast. Sean, send us home, brother. All right, gang. We're going to see you all again next time when those theater lights go dim and the opening credits begin to roll. Charlie, afraid I'd never come over without being invited first. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're quite right. Of course, uh, now that I've been made welcome, I'll probably drop by quite a bit. In fact, anytime I feel like it.